We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think. Welcome to Behind the Headlines. I'm Neil Bradley. With me as always, Joe Quinn. Hi there. Today, what happened to Libya? We're interviewing James <laughs> and Joanne Moriarty. They, they are a couple, an American couple. They were in Libya when it all went down in flames back in 2011. James and Joanne had visited, visited Libya numerous times since about 2007 when they patented a unique enzyme that cleans oil wells and oil extraction equipment. This was in high demand, of course, in Libya, being an oil-producing country. After signing a joint venture with the Libyan government near Tripoli, they began building a production facility to to fulfill contracts for their product. And then, February 2011, the so-called Libyan Revolution begins. Later that year, in May, they were involved in or led, we'll find out from them soon, an NGO fact-finding commission, uh, which... Went around. They went around Libya, watching what was going down through August of that year, 2011. During this time, they were kidnapped and were very lucky to escape with their lives. We'll be getting their story and what happened there. They have presented the information you're about to hear, backed up with extensive documentation at numerous speaking events, not least on radio shows like today's. They've been blacklisted, soft-killed, isolated, and financially ruined. They've put together a DVD Escape from Al-Qaeda. You should also check out the website, LibyanWarTheTruthOneWord.com. A very big welcome to James and Joanne Moriarty. Thank you so much. Wanted to be on your show today. Nice to be here. Great stuff. James and Joanne, it's great, yeah, it's great to have you here. Um, so let's just um, let's just take it from the top here. What were two? You guys are from Texas, right? Originally or not? Well, uh, I was originally from Texas, Joanne from Oregon, but uh, right. we had three properties here in the United States, and that was uh, the Woodlands, Texas, which is a suburb of the of Houston. Yes. And then we had a we had a little uh, ranch farm in Arizona where we grew rattlesnakes and scorpions. And then uh, Joanne had a big home in the in the Portland area. Right. So, what took what what caused two people like that? To be, although it sounds pretty enterprising, actually, the way you described your, your background in the U.S., what what took you to Libya? Why did you end up in Libya? Because I'm, pre- I'm pretty sure, relatively speaking, there aren't a lot of Americans in Libya. Even no, before. not all. In, fa- in fact, in fact, when we were there, the annual amount of uh, foreigners were in Libya was about 380,000, and about probably 350,000 of those were involved in the oil and gas industry. Right. But uh, beginning before 2000, we started developing. Uh, our technology, and really what we do is we do a, a medical-grade DNA manipulation of microbes, and then we kill all the living portion off, and then we end up with an enzyme or enzymes that do a lot of neat things to oil or any kind of, of sticky oil, even chicken fat. And we literally make millions of different products. We've been at it so long that uh, we custom build an enzyme for each activity, each oil well we rejuvenate, 
we run a, a laboratory analysis and build an enzyme. We, we literally build millions of products. And we treated oil wells in China, Indonesia, Venezuela. We did uh, Superfund cleanup sites in the United States. And, and what we, we did, we have a, have a great product there. We don't have any peers. And any time we compete against Halliburton, Schlumberger, any of the big guys, we always get the contracts. In fact, when they have screwed up, oil wells that they could not rejuvenate. They called us to come back in and fix their problems. Uh, we never patented the product. We maintain control over our, our codes, if you would, by doing all the production ourselves. And uh, so, you know, we, we uh, pumped everything we made back into the business, and, and we were very, very successful at it. And in the 38 years since Libya was, Libya was embargoed, they had no new technology. So we knew that they were a prime candidate for us, and we were trying to get agents in Libya before the treaty was ever signed. But after the treaty was signed in 2006, then that opened the door for for us and other companies going to Libya. So we actually were in Libya. We arrived 1st of January 2007, and that was through the assistance of a friend of Joanne's who was a member of the royal family in England who had, who had known Libya, known Gaddafi. And, and so we were one of the first uh, – uh, foreigners, if you would, in Libya. And uh, we went there, to, of course, to try to exploit our business. And uh, we went there the first time, five days. We had we had four security guys with us. They were all about the size of a mountain, you know, and they were there to protect us because everything we heard about Libya, oh, my gosh, those guys were crazy and they were radical and everything. And we really went there just to take a look-see. Right. And We'd planned to be there five days. We liked them. They liked us. They asked us to stay an extra couple of weeks. They said they were, they wanted to, to try to arrange a contract for our product. So that was all good. And we ended up every night, we ended up meeting with a different minister. And uh, not necessarily about our business. They wanted to know how business was done in the Western world. They wanted to know how contracts were arranged, who negotiated, who was represented. Different minister every night. Really nice people. And they were... Oh, naive maybe, you know, but I, I, I always call them innocent because they were really not hardcore business people like we had met other, in other parts of the Middle East or, or in the Western world. And also what we found out when we got there, you know, Jimmy had packed a bunch of scarves for me. He thought I was going to have to cover my head. But Libya was the most progressive Muslim country in the world. Gaddafi had emancipated women in the 70s. They were doctors and lawyers and homemakers and entrepreneurs and members of the military, and they spoke their mind. They were out. They were in the in the government. They were driving their own cars. They owned their own businesses. It was so different from what we had heard that after two days, I sent our security team home. We didn't need them. Right. We walked wow. around without any security or anything. And Libyans love uh, Americans. They love uh, you know. People from outside their country, they're always looking forward to them coming. They come up on the street and say, are you are you from, where are you from, uh, England? Where are you from? You know, and we'd say American. They'd say, Hollywood, Hollywood. You know, they, you? Do you like our country? You yeah, know, they, very friendly. Very friendly people, very nice people. So, uh, they had, go ahead. Them not being, uh, uh, as James just said, the, the Libyans, you got the impression they weren't hardcore kind of business people. That, that has a lot to do with the kind of way Libyan society was structured and had been structured under Gaddafi, right? Well, yeah, I, I think it's more tribal. Okay. You know, the, 
the thing we found out about the Libyans is they are the most non-confrontational people I have ever met in my entire life. They won't start a fight. You can't get them to start a fight. And uh, their culture is, and I'll give you an example. If I run into your car, you're going to forgive me for that accident, but then I'm going to owe you a favor. They don't have insurance. And mm-hmm. next week, next month, next year, you may call me and say, my daughter's getting married. I want you to supply the food for the for the festival. And I'm obligated to do that. And if I don't do it, then my family must do it. And if my family doesn't do it, then my tribe must step forward and do it. Mm-hmm. And that's how to settle all their problems. Now, if two people are so hard-headed that they cannot agree immediately to settle their differences, then those two people are put in a jail cell together, and they're fed gruel and camel's milk until they come to an agreement, Mm -hmm. just like they should have made in the first place. That's their culture. And it was completely different from what we had expected, you know, but they are non-confrontational people. They don't want to fight about anything. There's a great story. This is just a little side story of, of a couple tribes that have been warring for years, killing each other and fighting each other. And when Gaddafi, actually, you know, that was a bloodless coup in 69, when 11 of the leaders of the, of the biggest tribes came together and kicked out the old despot king, who was put in there by the United Kingdom. He, the, Libya never had a king. That was installed by, by England, and he was a despot. He, Libya was the poorest country in Africa at that time. Libyans made an average of 60 dinars a year. Libyan people never owned their own land. They were basically the slaves of the Italians and the occupiers of their mm-hmm. land. And as soon as they, as soon as he found out there was going to be a coup, he ran off. Because that's who he was. He just ran off. Mm-hmm. So the, the 11 tribes, they appointed Gaddafi to be their leader because he was the youngest, one of the youngest. He was the most charismatic. He was the highly educated. And so he took over and he immediately gave all the land to all the Libyans that were working it. That's the first thing he did. First time they'd ever owned the land they had been working for generations. Ever. They never owned it before. Um, but I was going to tell you the story of these two tribes, how he handled this. These two tribes were fighting, and in the middle of the night, one night, uh, some, uh, I don't know if they were police or what were they were, showed up and took the people in their pajamas from all the members of each tribe, took them out to the desert, put them in a giant tent, a huge tent that each had one side, brought all their belongings behind them, gave them to them, brought food, brought everything they needed, and they were told, you two, people, you two tribes are going to stay in this tent in the desert, with food and water, you'll be taken care of until you come to an agreement that you're going to get along. Mm-hmm. And they were out there a year. Wow. <laughs> and now they're very close. They don't fight anymore. Yeah. Wow. That's wow. interesting. Sounds like a dictator, doesn't it? Not really. No. <laughs> no, it's so different to what we think of when we hear the word Libya. It's the opposite. Yeah. yeah tell them about the education. Now, I'm going to tell you a little bit about, about Libya when the, we found out. Uh, from the time that, that Gaddafi, for all practical purposes, took over until the time we got there, Libya went from being the poorest country, the least developed in Africa, to the number one country. Average salary was $15,700 a year. That was higher than China, higher than India. Um, when you got married, the government gave you a $46,000 gift. Each child uh, begat a $5,000 gift from the government. Your house cost you 10% of your salary for 20 years, and then it was yours. They were building 620,000 new condominiums, at least 2,000 square foot each. Your first car cost you half of dealer invoice. Your utilities were paid, electricity, gas, et cetera. Gasoline was 44 cents a gallon. Um, 
your education was fully paid to whatever extent your brain would support. And while we were there, we knew a young man that was getting his Ph.D. in England. He had a wife and four kids, tuition fees, books, all paid for, plus his stipend was 4,500 pounds a month. Your hospitalization fully paid, and if you could not get the treatment in Libya, then the government would pay for you to go anywhere in the world to have the treatment paid. They paid your uh, expenses, your travel expenses, and the expenses of a family member to go with you. Uh, nobody in Libya had any debt. The country had no debt. They only spent about 49% of the money they took in to run the government. The rest of the money was distributed out via these activities to the people. The people were, were and very and well. People. Six and They lived very well. If you were a bad businessman and you lost your money for whatever reason and you needed to feed your family, there were storehouses, food storehouses all over the country. You could go up to the storehouse, tell them you needed food, and without any idea or anything, they'd give you 50 kilos of rice and 50 kilos of, of, of flour, 20 kilos of powdered milk, uh, enough money to have an animal slaughtered, 20 kilos of cheese, etc., and they gifted it to you. And if you had to come back two or three days later, do it again. At uh, Ramadan, which is like their Christmas, the any man, woman, and child could go into any bank in Libya, and they got a $500 gift from the government. So, you know, the people in Libya had a really good life. There was not ever any intent for those people to have an uprising. That was an absolute false flag operation. But there was corruption there. Oh, There's yeah. There's always corruption. The Turkish mafia was there, and they caused a huge amount of trouble. They were in Misrata. And they they actually immigrated from Turkey about 150 years ago, and, and they claimed that they joined Libyan society and became Muslims and everything, but... That was all a lie. They actually became the biggest mafia in Libya, and they were the cause of a huge amount of the problems with a lot of the uh, contracts that were going on. The reason they were able to become the dominant mafia is because, as I said, the Libyans were non-confrontational. And these people went in there, and they they, they uh, physically abused everybody until they got 60% of all the contracts in Libya were let to them without bid or tender. And then they would turn around and sublet these contracts out to foreign uh, contracting companies and builders. And when we went there, that first trip in, we actually ended up signing a contract to rejuvenate 2,500 of their monster wells. That would have required about $600 million to a $1 billion worth of just our enzyme. The oil field service charges on top of that would have been probably another billion or a billion and a half. That's with a B. Wow. So we have to hit a home run first shot out of the barrel. That never happens. And um, so we we then had to go back and find out how uh, Libya did business because we read the problems that they had with all these foreign contractors that were abandoning, abandoning projects. There were 150 that had been abandoned at big loss to the foreign developers. And so we studied, we started studying the Libyan law and tried to find a Libyan partner because we do not do the in-field service work. We do our magic in our laboratory and in our production facility, but the treatment of the wells or the cleanup of the pipelines, sludge pits, and all that, that's done by a local company. And we let the local company do the politicking and everything. That's been our modus operandi in China and Indonesia, Venezuela, every place we've ever done business. So um, – we first of all had to find out how the, the country worked, what the laws were, and then find a good Libyan partner that uh, we could trust to do the, the quality work that we needed to 
to make our, our products successful as they have been every place. And it really took us almost two years to finally get to the point that we could uh, build companies that would qualify in Libya to be paid directly from the government. In other words, not be a subcontractor under, under a Libyan partner. And they did have laws that allowed that. Now, it required a plethora of documentation that had to include uh, notary seals. It, it had to include the Secretary of State of the United States sign every document. It required that the Arab American Chamber of Commerce do all that. Well, we ended up with two corporations American Petroleum Consortium and Libya American Consortium that were actually qualified with 11 ministries in Libya as Libyan companies, which meant, which meant we could be paid directly from the government without any Libyan involved in it. And by law in Libya, if you get a contract, the money for that contract has to be put into a bank account fully funded before you can start the project. So I'm a banker. We like that. If the money was there and we, when we had, our, had done our work properly, then we would be able to pencil out our profit on the front end. So, uh, you know, Libya was a place that was really welcoming to foreigners as long as they did the paperwork properly. Let me say something about the Libyan government because nobody understands, and we didn't understand about the Libyan government when we were on our fact-finding commission is when we actually found out exactly how it works. We went to the uh, Al-Fatih University and spoke to some of the professors there. The Libyan government has two parts. They have an elected uh, parliament, if you will, elected from all over Libya that's headed to, by a prime minister. That's, the prime minister's name was Baghdadi at the time of the war. Uh, Gaddafi was required to step down according to the Treaty of 2006. So Gaddafi had not been the leader of Libya since the treaty. Since wow. 2006. He wasn't yeah, actually. No. Okay. Yep. No, and, and understand this. This is a little confusing because I always ask Libyans, I said, but you say he's your leader. They said, yes. He is our leader. You have to understand us. We're a tribal society. He is our spiritual, spiritual leader. leader, our brother. That's how they refer to him. He's not the leader of the government. Right. So well, Baghdadi uh, was the was the Baghdadi was the prime minister. prime minister. The other part of the government is the uh, general secretariat of the tribes, and those are appointed tribal leaders of all the tribes that come together. There's about 250 of them, and they are the shadow government. They have the right to remove politicians and do a whole bunch of stuff. So they really had a more pure democracy than anybody in the world. There are really two houses there. One of them's elected, and one of them is democratically appointed, if you would, through the tribes. And so they really had a, a counterbalance system with the tribes being the shadow government. And uh, the thing that, that uh, we saw was that uh, uh, Baghdadi was an appointed. He was the he was the guy that was put in place by the Mizrata Mafia. And, of course, all kinds of criminal activities were going on all the time from Mizrata. In fact, they had a big building outside of Tripoli, about a 10-story building on the west side of Tripoli. And it kind of stands off by itself, and we drove by it all the time. And I said, what is it? They said, that's the building of Alibaba and the 40 Thieves. <laughs> that's what they called the Mizrata <laughs> office. <laughs> so they knew they were criminals, you know, and, and they would go complain to Gaddafi about how these are criminals and they need to do something about it. And he said, you elect me. Go on the street, throw him out, vote him out. Take to the street. This is your country. He said, I, he said I can't do that. And I know this is his mentality because in 2000 and I think it was in 2010, the European community gathered up 60 billion euros to donate to the uh, third world countries African in Africa. Union. 
and they appointed Gaddafi as the uh, as the, the as the uh, uh, keeper of those funds. And he was interviewed there in France by one of your reporters, and they, and the reporter said, "Well, you know, uh, this is this is not much money for all of Africa." And Gaddafi said, "You know, you're not going to ever help Africa by giving them money. You're going to help Africa by training them to work and training them to be productive themselves." Mm-hmm. So again, sounds like it sounds like a health dictator. We we did not ever meet Gaddafi. We didn't know him. We we did business more with the tribes. But I have to tell you, I met Gaddafi through the literally thousands and thousands of Libyans we met when we were there on the fact-finding commission through the hearts and minds of the people of Libya. That's where we met him. Mm-hmm. I, I have to say that anything I say about him came from those people, not from him. Right. And he was, gener- yes. he was generally loved. Sure. Yes. About 85% fully supported him. There had always been this radical <coughs> niche on the far east side around Derna. Of, of radicals, I think the, the the gene puddle over there was probably uh, limited, and so those guys were a lot of psychopaths and a lot of a lot of nutters. That uh, they were in exile, most of them, because they couldn't come back. Libya did not allow any radical Islam inside the country. Period. Right. In right. fact, if you had a beard and a mustache, you probably couldn't get a job, and definitely would not be elevated. Mm. Yeah, that was clear right after nine eleven. I mean, Gaddafi was first and foremost among the Middle Eastern countries to get behind the war on terror. He's saying, yeah, I know there are extremists. Look what we did. We lock them up. Let me give you better than that. In the first week of February 2011, the United States Department of Defense declared that Gaddafi and Libya were the strongest allies in the war against terrorism because Gaddafi had been actively trying to help clear the world of these radical psychopaths. He was the first one that, that went to the UN and said that, that uh, Al-Qaeda is a, growing is a growing threat and has to be dealt with. And, of course, um, two weeks after the Department of Defense gave him this big award, he was then declared the worst guy that ever drew a breath in the media. So you have to understand, Gaddafi did none of those terrorist acts, like, like Lockerbie and all those. He, he was not, Libya was not involved in any of those. How could he not? How could he hate terrorism and then be a terrorist? It doesn't even make any sense. Right. Those terror attacks that he was that Libya was accused of. I mean, apart from Lockerbie, which I think there's enough evidence now to show that that was completely a completely fabricated case against <laughs> Libya. I mean, there's more. CIA. Than that, right. That it was more or less the CIA that that was involved in, in blowing that plane up. Um, but there was a previous one, the the U.S. bombing of um, uh, was Benghazi and. Uh, and Tripoli maybe uh, in 1986 because oh, yeah. of the Berlin disco bombing uh, in August of that, uh, or earlier that year. That's also been proven to be a false flag. Yeah, so was, was the, the the murder of that of that uh, officer, police officer outside the Libyan embassy. That was not done by Libya. The reason yeah. Gaddafi, the reason Gaddafi paid those fines is to get back in the in the mainstream. The oil production in Libya at the time mm-hmm. that the the embargoes took place. Libya was producing 3.7 million barrels of oil a day. When we went into Libya in 2011, it was less than a million barrels of oil a day, and that was because no technology had been allowed into the country to help them get their production yeah, out. There was mm. tremendous pressure from the Libyan people and from Gaddafi's advisors for him to do that. Just forget it. So he, it he, he bought country. off. If you, he he bought off the complaints in order to get the country back into the. Uh, world market, and that's right. why we see him 
meeting Tony Blair and uh, Nicolas Sarkozy prior to yeah. all this going down. He was basically oh, burying so- the hatchet by taking the blame and paying up, even though he wasn't yeah, responsible. He gave, he gave Sarkozy $50 million for his campaign when he was elected. Right. And Sarkozy around him was the lead in killing him. He also gave $10 million to Barack Obama's uncle, gave $50 million to Barack Obama when he was running for president. Oh, and, of course, that, that, that helped finance the knife in his back. The 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 the, the scurrilousness of I mean the, the, these people are just gone back. I mean you mentioned that about Obama getting money from Gaddafi and, and Sarkozy getting fifty million dollars for his for his presidential election campaign and he got elected and Sarkozy's up um, you know was up or was was in court basically over that over taking campaign funds from but I mean. What, what kind of person do you have to be to do that? I mean, you take $50 million from, from Gaddafi, and a couple of years later, you're... you're Make up kind a of bunch of lies and get killed. Yeah. Well, you oh, you got to get to who's really pulling the strings. You know, these are just puppets. Right. The scientists, the bankers, the guys that own all this, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into now why Libya was blown up. Please do. Right, but I just wanted to say that when you mentioned, when I mentioned the uh, U.S. bombing of... Uh, of Libya in, in 1996 because supposedly Libya was accused of uh, blowing up a German disco uh, discotheque in uh, 1986. Like uh, James just said, there is evidence already, and it's actually been on a <clears> – <throat> in 1998, it was on a, a German TV show, uh, ZDF Television. They had a show on it, and they laid out the evidence that it was the CIA and Mossad who were running, the, running the, basically the guys who – who, who were involved in that. These were effectively CIA and Mossad agents who were directly involved in yeah. the blowing up of that discotheque. They blamed the it on Mossad Libya. Is, yes, sir, but, you know, those two, those two entities are responsible for all these false flag operations forever. But this, the reason you don't the reason you don't hit it because there's not enough guys like you out there telling the truth. Right, and the Israeli involvement, I think, was because Gaddafi was supporting the Palestinians, right? And, and no. Picked off the no, no. They've been involved in all the false flag operations to support the Zionists. You know, and the Zionists have hijacked the Jewish religion. Right. But the Zionists are out to take over the world. And, and there's there's 85 people that own 70% of everything in the world. They wanted a military base in the Green Mountain part of Libya. We have the actual document signed. It came from the tribe security, signed by the Mossad with the, with the so-called rebels, which was al-Qaeda and NTC, NTC mm. that they would get – if the Mossad would arm and train them and help them, then they would give them an uh, area to build a uh, Israel base. military base in the Green Mountain area of Libya. That was before 2000. That was during 2010, a long time before Arab Spring. Right. But the reason Joanne and I are authorities is we had been in Libya 17 times from January 2007 until February of 2011. August 2011. Well, we've been there 17 times. We were there never less than 30 days. Several times we were there more than three months at a time. We've been all over the country. And successively, we signed additional contracts to do all kinds of activities in Libya. So we were really business people that were, were 
fully exploiting our opportunities in Libya, but we got to know the Libyan people. We travel all over the country. We, we travel more in Libya than Libyans did. We love the country. It's a beautiful country. Right. Uh, parts of the desert has their, like, the jewel lakes, and they have, there's, it's a really strikingly beautiful country. Better and more pristine Roman ruins than you'll ever see in Rome or Greece or any place. And but, the, the Libyan people are so friendly that it makes it very nice and easy to, to move around. But I was there in, in January of 2000, I arrived January 1st, 2011. I signed my joint venture contract. It was actually with the Social Security Investment Fund of John Zur. There were six investment funds in Libya. That was the littlest one at $16 billion. The biggest one was $33 billion for the uh, uh, E employees. But the reason that was the perfect partner for us is that the beneficiaries of that fund were all the retired workers from the oil and gas industry, the National Oil Company, the oil producers, the uh, infield service people. So it gave us the, the best political muscle we could ever have. Great partnership for, with them. And then uh, two days later, I signed the contract to locate our production facility in a new free zone that was being built near the Tunisian border. I then ordered in all the materials, which are, are sta- ceramic, lined, stainless steel. Our entire plant is, uh, is uh, ceramic, lined, stainless steel equipment because we grow the microbes in the equivalent of a beer batter, which, of course, is real caustic. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I brought in enough feedstocks to supply that plant for two years. So we had, between the cash we put in the banks there and that facility, we had over $200 million in Libya. And uh, I left there on the 8th of February, 2011. Less than 10 days later, supposedly, the revolution started. But I'll, I'll tell you something strange about that revolution. Supposedly, it was it was spontaneous. But on the same day, within an hour of each other, 18 police stations were firebombed with cars. In different cities. In different cities all over the country. Mm-hmm. Then the stations were attacked. The Everybody in there was killed. They took the guns and everything out. The next thing they did within a couple hours, they they took bulldozers, knocked down the, the fencing of military uh, weapon storage places. With They had the right kind of a hook on the front of the bulldozer to drag the tanks out of there. Then they turned the turrets around and started firing on the military. So this was an absolute military operation from day one. And for anybody to say it was a it was a spontaneous uprising, absolute ball face lie. Mm-hmm. The next thing that happened that was so unusual, first time in history that a bunch of rabble rouser rebels uh, start a revolution in a country, and and six days after the revolution starts, they opened up a central bank in Benghazi. Immediately, that central bank was recognized, and all the money that Libya had in the Federal Reserve System and in Euroclear was released to that central bank. Hmm. Now, that was extensive money. Libya had $241 billion in cash and cash equivalents in the Federal Reserve System. They had 150 billion euros in Euroclear. All these deposits were required for Libya to be accepted back into the international community. Libya also had $39 billion in cash in the country. They had 179 tons of gold, 2,000 tons of silver. They had lots of tons of every other rare earth, heavy earth, and precious metal that you can imagine. So Libya was a very, very wealthy country, and they had no debt. And so uh, it was really easy for the Zionists to pick on Libya and say, well, gosh, we need to blow them up anyhow. 
and this will be a hell of a profit center for us. All that has disappeared. And, and you need to remember there were only six to six and a half million Libyans in the whole country. The country was the seventh largest footprint in Africa, 17th largest country in the world, and about number five in uh, recoverable reserves of oil and gas. Now then, why did Libya get blown up? There was three real reasons. First one was the United States is bound and determined to have a war with China. And Africa, of course, is the continent with the most natural resources of any place. So the United States is, has set up AFRICOM, which is military control of Africa, in order to keep the Chinese away from those natural resources. Yeah. Libya, South Africa, and six other countries told the United States they'd go pound sand because they were never going to give up military control of their country. So, of course, the United States says, well, hell, we need to get rid of Libya. It's the strongest country because we've got to have military control of Africa. So the United States is ready to knock them off for that reason. Second, Gaddafi was a real bright guy, and he didn't like any of the banks at all, didn't like any of the foreign banks. When Joanne and I first went in there, we planned to be there five days, had some money. Staying there another two weeks required we needed more cash. No credit cards, nothing. Their only international bank was Western Union. We loved that because that meant there were no international banks there. No we could do business there. there. So uh, Gaddafi didn't like international banks. So whenever he retired, he started to develop the African bank. It's domiciled in the Comore Islands. Uh, it has a gold-backed dinar for the continent of Africa. Every Arab country had signed up as members. Half of Africa had signed up as members. So the Zionists had to blow up Libya and get rid of the African bank because a gold-backed currency with the continent of Africa behind it would have destroyed the toilet paper bankers. They couldn't sell their crap paper when there was a real currency over here in com competition with them. So the Zionists, of course, wanted to get rid of Gaddafi in order to get rid of the 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 African bank. And then the third thing was uh, the European Union uh, and the United States. Uh, Gaddafi and the country of Africa had been sanctioned for 38 years, which had cost them I don't know how much money. In addition to that, Gaddafi was a great big African Union guy, and so he had gone to all the African countries and gathered up all the treaties that had been violated by all the imperialist countries that had been in Africa and they put a dollar number on all those violations of those treaties, and a class action suit was brought against the United States and all the European countries that had been in Africa. It was taken to international court. The total damages asked for was in excess of $7 trillion. Wow. And as the attorney said, that, that lawsuit had legs. So, of course, Europeans, uh, Greece and France and, and Germany, all of them were, were near bankrupt. Anyhow, they couldn't afford to pay out anything. So, of course, they signed on to get rid of Libya because they needed that stopped. So those are thrilled, the three main reasons why Libya was the target it was. And this attack was planned years in advance. Um, in fact, on our DVD, if you saw the, the interview with Dennis Kucinich, mm -hmm. uh, Dennis Kucinich outed, outed, the uh, the planned invasion of Libya, they had been planning it for years, and then the war games were played in 2010 for the attack on Libya. It didn't say Libya, but it said a 
oil-rich North African dictatorship, and there would be 11 uh, military ships taken into the Mediterranean. That's how many went in there. A no-fly zone would be established. They'd use local uh, distance and bring in mercenaries as necessary. That was done. And it was to start, I think, on the 17th of March was the date they had planned that whole thing to start. It actually started a month before on the 18th of February. So this was no Arab Spring. This was no uh, revolution. This was an absolute coup d'etat. It was planned years in advance. It was executed. And the fact that they destroyed Libya, good riddance, because as the Zionists say, you know, acceptable collateral damage. And cause of the U.S., U.S., U.N. and NATO, 600,000 Libyans have been killed, men, women, and children. Two million live in exile. Of the three million left in Libya, a million of them are homeless. The other two million live in fear. The country is owned and operated by Muslim Brotherhood, Al-Qaeda, and al-Sharia, and now ISIS. And the U.S. is continuing to support ISIS every single day in Libya. They're bringing military, more mercenaries and everything into Libya every day. There's 128 mass graves in Libya. But let's go back and tell how we got there. Yeah. We, we um, in April of 2011, we were trying. We were putting out uh, information, and we, and we put out some articles that we got information from. We Libya. paid to have them published. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. about what was happening in Libya. Uh, Bishop Martinelli was uh, wrote an article in the Catholic Digest. He, he was the Catholic uh, prelate there. That uh, they were bombing hospitals, that women were having miscarriages at an alarming rate, that, that people were having heart attacks. That I mean, he, he wrote a really nice article. We published it. Or we tried to. They wouldn't let us publish it. They said that's, it wasn't not, covered by that's not a good enough source, they said. Um, anyway, we were uh, contacted by email from, by a uh, NGO fact finding commission group put together by uh, it's they're the world, world, it's a world youth, youth yeah world youth youth organization for peace I think and they have two billion members they're in Africa and India and all over and they contacted us and asked us if we would please uh, head a fact finding commission that we were we don't know how they got our name but we were recommended by somebody and so we went on that fact finding commission we went to to England first and we were joined by British people and. Uh, French people and Italians and some Pakistanis and some people from Kenya. And we all went on this fact-finding commission. The, the no-fly zone was in place, so we had to fly into to Tunisia, and we were driven into Tripoli. And we were – that was first week in May, and we ended up being trapped inside Tripoli for 100 days. And during that time, w- one of the conditions we – laid on the, the invite was we got to go anywhere in, in Libya and verify for ourselves if these atrocities were actually being committed by the Libyan government. If they were, we were going to tell the story, and if they weren't, then we would tell that story. And we were given open license to go any place. Uh, we paid all our own expenses. We rented our own vehicles. We, we paid our hotel. All that was at our nickel. And uh, we ended up being there much longer than we'd planned to be. But the road between Tripoli and Tunisia was closed due to bombing shortly after we got into Tripoli. And Tripoli, there wasn't anything going on. They bombed every night. But uh, the people there, there was no fighting in the streets because the Libyan people, the, especially those in Tripoli, had no fight with their government at all. And um, so we were safe inside Tripoli. We were taken to bomb sites. We interviewed a whole lot of people who had uh, great atrocities, great war crimes were done to this country. You can't imagine what was done to this country. 250,000 mercenaries were brought in to take over the country. Al-Qaeda, uh, they came from 
they were all mostly radical. Some some were Blackwater. There was Blackwater there. They were they were from some other countries. Um, they were trained. Two hundred fifty thousand. Where did they get yes. Uh, oh, the CIA's got they, training centers everywhere. A lot of them came from Afghanistan. They'd be fighting the USA the, the week before, and they They're were brought from, in by the U.S. and armed by the U.S. and, and put in. There's even articles written. They're from uh, Somali. They're from Tunisia. Yemen, from, uh, Algeria, Egypt. They came from all those countries, mm-hmm. uh, armed and trained and paid mercenaries. And then there were a whole lot of Blackwater there, CIA. Uh, you know, they were all there. But the, they, first, the first billion dollars was transferred into their central bank, came from Saudi Arabia, and the net amount deposited into that bank was, I think, $935 million. The, bank, the banks, of course, had to take out their fees. And that almost billion dollars was dispersed out the first week to mercenaries. A lot of uh, – Qatar played a big role in this. They, they – the, the people that were killed in Benghazi that was blamed on Gaddafi, they said Gaddafi for killing – Sniper for killing people on the streets. Those were two hired or two people that weren't even Libyans in the street, and they were killed by Qatar snipers. That's a known fact. Now, Libyans all know that. Mm-hmm. So it was a 100% false flag. We interviewed some young men who were at the very start of it. and uh, how First day of the fight. Yeah, how they, they made them change their uh, Libyan uniform into uh, normal clothes, and they were killed, and they were filmed and said it was uh, Gaddafi who killed them, that these were rebels. Yeah, the important part about that is these two, the two entities that were there embedded with the rebels from day one, knowing everything was going on was Al-Arabiya and Al-Jazeera TV, and they were there with Al-Qaeda from day one. They filmed the Libyan soldiers being required to take off their uniforms and put on street clothes. They filmed them being massacred by Al-Qaeda and then turned around and put out the news that it was it was uh, the Libyan soldiers that killed these guys and chopped off their heads, etc. So the, the lies from the paid-for media began day one. The Al Jazeera and Al-Arabiya were embedded. Now, we know that because the first 13 guys – that were captured and, and killed. Exactly. One of them, one of them, he was a Libyan. One of them was shot through the head twice and once in the shoulder. And they dumped all these bodies on the, on a truck to take them out to the desert. And, uh, a couple of miles more, they'd been killed. Somebody standing on the side of the road, seeing these bar- truckload of bodies go by, saw this one body moving. They stopped the truck. The guy was still alive. They smuggled him, took him out of the truck, smuggled him up to their apartment. And then got him into a hospital in Benghazi. They removed one of the bullets there in his brain. He was in such bad shape they couldn't remove the other one. Uh, the Al-Qaeda found out he was still alive. They tried to poison him several times while he was in the hospital. They, the good Libyans got him smuggled out of there, got him in an airplane, got him to Tunisia. There he had the other brain, I mean the other bullet from his brain removed, had, had his shoulder rebuilt. And the day he arri- the second day he arrived back in Libya with his family, we were asked to come over there and interview him. And he spoke in a kind of a stilted speech, but over a two or two and a half hour period sitting under a tree in, in very nice Zawiya, he told us the whole story. And we're probably only people who have that on tape. We've got uh, several hundred. This guy? He was one of the Libyan soldiers who was, was over there trying to protect he, the airport. Right. From, from the rebels in Benghazi on the first day of the uprising. This was a story they played over and over and over on the media saying this is what Gaddafi does to people. Mm-hmm. And it was a setup and, and it was a complete lie because it was work, it was the other way around. And this yeah. guy was an eyewitness. He was there and he survived. Mm-hmm. 
and the fact that the media was embedded with them from day one on the lies is, is the telling tale. But uh, we found out that all the media in Libya, all the media was, were uh, agencies from someplace, and they were even calling it. They would ask to go to a military place that had been bombed, and then they would call in the airstrikes. They did it at radio stations. They did a lot of places. And so finally the Libyan government would not allow the, the media to go out into the field where they could call in strikes because they were all CIA whatever. And when we were asking the, the Libyan security about that, I said, how in the world? I said, this guy's over there calling in uh, latitude and longitude on his cell phone. He said, yeah, we know that. But he said, you know, uh, they're here. What are we going to do about it? I said, well, you all need to get on the 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 offensive, and you need to have your own uh, public relations campaign to tell the truth. And this is how faithful the Libyan people are. They said, the truth and our faith will save us, mm. our God. Now, uh, I said, not when you've got this big gorilla blowing you up. Yeah. And on that vein, the United States directed 60,000 bombing sorties into Libya from from March of 2011 through October of 2011, 60,000 bombing sorties. They dropped more bombs than were dropped in entire World War II yeah, on this little country. Things. And they used every kind of nasty bomb. Depleted they used, uranium. They used depleted uranium shells exclusively. They, they used fuel air explosive, which is a poor man's nuclear weapon. They used that on Banwalid and on Sirt because those two uh, towns would not give up under any circumstances. And so the war crimes and the atrocities committed are unbelievable. They bombed schools. They bombed hospitals. They bombed uh, food supplies. They bombed water supplies. They bombed water roads, treatment They bombed plants. houses. They bombed apartment buildings. Uh, they bombed date palm orchards. School buses. You, you can't imagine. They bombed uh, the Children's Center, which was an, uh, a UNESCO or whatever they call it. It was a building on the antique building, uh, you know, where they protect these because they're antiques. The yeah. Libyan, the Libyan uh, uh, government or people had the highest, if not the highest, one of the highest rate of child survival in the world. 100% inoculation, uh, the best prenatal and postnatal care in the world, uh, and all those records were in this beautiful antique building that rebuilt. And the UN representative was there in the basement of that building going through all these records for hours he left, and 30 minutes later, a bunker buster bomb hit that building, destroyed it completely, and all the records gone. So the the Libya's, Libya's ability to prove what a good humanitarian place it was was destroyed. That was a place where they had uh, adults that were uh, hurt or injured, and they needed rehab, and they had also for uh, uh, mentally uh, challenged people. They had all kinds of stuff going on in that building, but they just blew it up. They, you can't imagine what they were doing. They, they did their bombings at night to stress out everybody. People, they started about 2 o'clock and went till 6.30 in the morning, yeah. every night. And they brought in helicopters from time to time, and just you just hear the cannons da, 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 going through the streets, you know. Just just mow down people when they felt like it. Now, this is this yeah. is under the – the only thing that was ever authorized was a no-fly zone to protect the innocents. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that no-fly zone, according to the U.S. pilots that set it up, after two and a half days, they said the – the no-fly zone has been completely established, and Libya could not get a mosquito in the air. Yet, three weeks after the no-fly zone was established, Chris Stevens, who was uh, the gun runner to the rebels, mm-hmm. delivered 20,000 
man pad uh, and shoulder mounted shoulder to air rockets to Al Qaeda and Muslim Brotherhood in Libya. Twenty thousand of them. This is after the no fly zone had been established, hmm. and there was no reason for that at all. Well, that year, you know, sometime later, that's what bit Chris Stevens and, and caused them to have him assassinated. Because the rest of the countries around Libya complained to the UN and NATO and said, you know, Libya is like a sieve. And there are weapons coming out of Libya through our countries. We can't stop it. You all have to do something about it. They're coming out with all kinds of weapons and and rockets and everything. All the weapons that the the Libyan army had had been stolen, too. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it was coming out of there. The, the president of Chad and Yemen and all these people said, you've got, I mean, not Yemen, Niger. They said, you've got to stop this. Yeah. So there was pressure put on the United States to get these damn rockets back because the rest of the world is saying, you know, we cannot afford to have our commercial liners shot down with all these rockets that you gave to these psychopaths. Do you think, the other- do you think that, uh, like you said, that they had established a no-fly zone? But they were bringing in anti-aircraft missiles, man pads and stuff. And Chris Stevens was part of it. Do you think they were bringing that in? Not obviously there was no air threat in Libya, but they were bringing it in so they so that they could later do what they did, which is basically send them over to the so-called rebels in Syria. Of course, no, absolutely. Of course, Chris because Stevens. Chris Stevens was funneling all the weapons to Syria. He was funneling mercenaries that were being trained in Libya right. later too. There were twenty. There were twenty-eight. He was assassinated. By who? By well, the the proof that we brought forth was was Morsi was the coordinator. It was Ansar al Sharia, but uh, Muslim Brotherhood. Brotherhood, But I'm pretty sure that everybody in Washington D.C. knew about it. Mm -hmm. Because here's here's the thing that we know: six weeks before it ever happened, we were told by the Libyan tribes that uh, one of the generals that was embedded with uh, Muslim Brotherhood and Al Qaeda. He said they are planning attacks on U.S. Uh, soil in Libya, in Yemen, etc. It's going to happen on 9/11. And we said, "What do you mean U.S. soil?" He said, "You know, U.S. soil here in Libya and Yemen. You know, your U.S. soil. Mm-hmm. Well, that has to be the embassies, you know. Right. And there was a small attack on the on the Tripoli embassy, but we tried to tell this." To everybody we could in Washington, D.C., I've got to tell you, Joanne's dialing finger is a digit shorter than it used to be from calling every single office, every government agency, every politician in Washington, D.C., Texas, Oklahoma, everybody, trying to to listen to us tell our government how wrong-footed we were in supporting al-Qaeda and Muslim Brotherhood. You know, we were so ignorant or stupid or naive or whatever we thought we were trying to, to fight a well, mutual enemy. You thought it we was didn't realize you that thought it was a mistake they were making. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And we figured when the government found out how wrong-footed they were that they would change right. it, you know. <laughs> you guys must <laughs> have had your eyes open since then. Oh, oh yeah, man. let me tell you. So, you know, when when uh, when they were telling us about Benghazi, we couldn't get anybody to listen to us. When, and, ben, when Benghazi was happening, you know, we're the official spokesperson for the tribes of Libya because they don't have any mouth in the world, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and they trust us because we sat with them while they were while blood ran in the streets in their country. Um, they called us at the night that it was happening at the at the embassy. Our our tribe, one of our tribal representatives, called and he said it's top urgent. He said the men that killed your ambassador are at this hospital in Benghazi right now. They're at this hospital and he gave me. He said tell your Intelligence people, tell them to get the drones over there. Tell them to get somebody over there. This is where they they all ran off to here. This is where they are. Okay? I have no one to tell. 
you know, you can't just the people, even the intelligence agencies I, were, I was talking to, they don't have, they don't answer their phone after five. You know, they're nine to five. Mm. So mm. Uh, the next call was about two twelve hours. hours what was it? Two hours later. Yeah, about two hours two later. Two hours later, he said, "Okay, these guys have now shaved all their beards, put on Western clothes, and they're in fancy cars in heading three heading into black Egypt." SUVs. One was an Audi. One was a Chevrolet, and or maybe two of them were Chevrolet. And they're on this on this road going between Benghazi. They're headed to Cairo. That road's real easy to follow. He said, you can knock them out. These are the guys that killed your ambassador, of course. Nobody here to, to tell or that would listen. Mm-hmm. And so um, uh, then later on we found out that the guy that served dinner to Chris Stevens and the ambassador from Turkey uh, that night in that mansion, and incidentally, for the world to know, that was never anything but a safe house. CIA. It was never a consulate. It was never a, a, an embassy. It was never intended to be there. Never that. had a U.S. flag on it. Never had a U.S. flag. Not one car that was there ever had a uh, an ambassador or political plate. They all had Libyan license Libya plates. Libya only has one authorized U.S. embassy. It's in Tripoli. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. anybody saying it was an embassy, that was not true. Uh, but the night the fighting started, uh, the man that served dinner to – Stevens and the representative from from Turkey, that servant, if you would, was one of the spies for the Libyan tribes, and he understands English very well. Mm-hmm. And the discussion they were having at dinner was Chris Stevens was pleading with this uh, Turkish representative to talk to Erdogan, who's the leader of Turkey, mm-hmm. to use his influence to get those twenty thousand rockets back. And he said, we will pay handsomely, whatever it takes to get those back. We've got to get them back. They're causing us political problems. And the Turkish representative, for all practical purposes, told him to pound sand. They finished dinner. The Turk left that that mansion, was put in a fast vehicle, driven to the military airport in Benghazi, and flown by military aircraft back to Turkey. When the plane sat down on the ground in Turkey, that's when... Uh, the three coordinators of the attack on, on that mansion called in the attack. And we know the names, addresses, and phone number of those three guys because their families gave them up. They were ashamed of them. And in January, after that, after that attack happened, the U.S. Secretary of State's Department offered a $10 million reward for the information leading to the arrest of the coordinators of that attack on the, on the house in Benghazi. We offered to give it to them free. They have not taken it. Trey Gowdy, who is supposedly running this big official investigation, never. We tried to give it to him. He didn't want it. Uh, Isa, who is another big investigator on the other side, uh, Louis Gomert, who is a Texas fire and brimstone guy. All these politicians that claim to be investigating Benghazi don't want that information. Well, in addition to that, of all the the people that were interviewed in Libya. The only ones ever interviewed by anybody in the United States were employees of the U.S. government. Not one non-U.S. government employee was ever interviewed. So the truth about Benghazi is being buried. The U.S. doesn't, the politicians here don't want to know about it. Well, we have a, a tribal leader who his son lived across from that compound, and he's an eyewitness right to what happened to it. <clears throat> he's been interviewed on, <clears throat> excuse me, a couple of radio shows. And he said that when they went in there, he said that the guys in the streets were not Libyans. He said they had a different accent, maybe Egyptian. He didn't know. They were dressed in strange clothes. 
And he was there. He said, are you here to kill us? And he said, the man told him, no, we're not here to kill Libyans today. We're here to kill Americans. And uh, yeah, But before that, he was in a little the equivalent of a convenience store a block away from his house when the first gunshots were fired. He jumped in his car and he drove back to his house. And while he was driving back, two cars exited the that compound where the mansion was, two cars at high speed. And he said Chris Stevens wasn't in either one. He said after they blew up the place, he said they invited him to go in. And he said, those are the people. You don't say, no, I'm not going to go with you. He said, you just do whatever they tell you because he said they'll kill you in a minute. He said they went in. The looters had been there, and it was dark inside. He said there was a body on the floor somewhere. Nobody could see the face or anything. It was dark, and they were abusing the body, kicking it and urinating on it and stuff. And he said when they finally drug it out, you could see it was Chris Stevens. He said, but I have to tell you, he said it's very obvious to him and to other people that Chris Stevens was dead probably long before the the actual attack started. So he said that would be my opinion. That's what he told me. But, you know, you have to understand that dead men tell no tales. Evidently, they have they have windows that have been equipped as as slides, you know, chutes for people to jump on the chute and you end up and they've got cars right there to to make an escape in the event of an attack. And um, the fact that Chris Stevens was not the first one down the chute is a question that needs to be asked. Uh, the fact that those two cars left at high speed without him in there, another question to be asked. So the, question, but, uh, the question here for me then is: Is there any suggestion of U.S. participation in the death of Chris Stevens? Well, I guess so. How can you drive any? How can you come to any other conclusion? You know, uh, the the people that could give the order gave an order to stand down, and even that they're lying about. But why Some of the why would they want to get rid of Chris Stevens, the U.S. government? Dead men tell no tales. Those 20,000 rockers are going to come back and bite the U.S. in the ass. Chris Stevens was CIA before he became an ambassador. He was the one who was in Libya, de-arming Libya from any nuclear uh, weapons they had. He also was the gun runner for the rebels into Libya. He then became the gun runner and the mercenary runner into Syria. He was working with Morsi. He was working with Egypt and the Muslim Brotherhood. And Morsi was a 30-year friend of Hillary Clinton and her husband. Right. So the suggestion then is that Chris Stevens couldn't be trusted. No, they don't. Chris Stevens knew too much. You know, put someone in a situation, they may may talk. Right. But but really, you know, a friend of mine is a a capital offense attorney, and I said, golly, I said, you know, with your personality, how in the world could you do that? And she said it's the easiest kind of law to practice because the key witness is always missing. Mm Mm-hmm. So in this case, they can say whatever they want to about what Chris Stevens did or didn't do, and what's he going to do? He can't defend himself. Right. But these 20,000, can you imagine uh, Muslim Brotherhood and Al-Qaeda and ISIS shooting down 20,000 commercial airplanes all over the world? Hmm. Yeah. Well, let's get back to Tripoli during the war. I'd like to give a little bit more on that if we could. Yeah, just as an introduction to that, I mean, I just wanted to ask the question about, you give the figure of 600,000 dead. Is that a direct result of the NATO bombing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because I haven't been able to find any figures anywhere in the mainstream media. Oh, they because, there you go. You gave the key word, the mainstream media, because they're lying like everything. The the NATO went in and did an investigation, said there were 60,000 killed or something. No, there were 100,000 the first month. 600,000 are the number of Libyans that are dead and missing. There are 128 mass graves in Libya. 
mostly full of blacks. There was genocide begun on all black Libyans the first week of this uprising, and al-Qaeda and Muslim Brotherhood swore they were going to cleanse the country of all blacks. And this number, is this came from the tribes. It's real hard for the tribes to give up that number because, you know, the families that are still holding out, well, we haven't heard from our son in four years, but maybe he's alive. Also, there's maybe 40,000 at least illegally imprisoned and being tortured. Probably 20,000 have at least been tortured to death. In, in Misrata, most of them are held. All they, their crime is that they did not support the revolution. Hmm. And a lot of the good leaders are there, like, like Abu Zaidorda are there uh, under, for no reason. He never broke any laws. They threw him out of a third story window as a 60 year old man broke both his legs, never gave him medical care. I mean, this is, this is the crimes that went on there, the war crimes. They embargoed Tripoli from food and medicine and, and, uh, gasoline and water. You can't do that. That's against all Geneva conventions. In that, in the main prison in, in Misrata, there were so many dead bodies rotting and everything that they had to abandon that place. The number, and that's when, when Doctors Without Borders abandoned them and UNICEF and these other, they said, we can't go in there. They're continuing to, to torture people to death. And, uh, there were so many dead and rotting bodies that it was such a health hazard, they abandoned that. They think there's as many as 28,000 dead inside that prison. But we know they were doing that because when we were captured by Al-Qaeda, we were taken to their torture center, which was really the Radisson Hotel. Okay. After after Tripoli was invaded, the, the tribes, one night we were sitting in the hotel with, with Sheikh Ali Alakwell, who was head of all the tribes, and, and uh, he'd ask us to come and meet with him and have tea. And when, when we were sitting there... Another tribal leader brought over a big envelope, two or three inches thick, and he tapped it, and he said, this is our new constitution. That had been agreed to by to be written by all the tribes. 100% of the tribes had agreed to that in May, first time in 100 years where they had 100% agreement on anything. This was to be in compliance with whatever the yeah. UN needed. And this was in, in uh, August, about August 25th, I think. No, about the 20th. 20th, okay. Yeah. And as soon as that constitution was finished, then that took that would have taken all the wind out of the sails of the U.S., U.N., NATO, etc., because a constitution would have been brought forward for all Libyans to vote yay or nay. So the the invasion of Tripoli started about three days later, hmm. and uh, they just started bombing. I mean, day and night bombing, and then they started bringing in their black helicopters off to see those. I don't know if they were Apache, what they were. With their cannons blaring, and the first hour they killed 1,300 people on the streets. Now, where I witnessed that, we were on the 21st floor of the Corinthia Hotel looking out over the Mediterranean, and we heard this noise, and we could see two of these helicopters coming in real low off the water with their mini cannons blaring. We could hear the third one, and they were firing at everything in the street. And as Joanne said, they killed 1,300 and wounded 5,000 in the first hour of the attack on Tripoli. Then and they were attacking mainly the area around the port. They were just attacking civilian people. There wasn't any then army there. Fighting. They started no, there was no army. Then they started uh, bringing in shiploads of these mercenaries in these little pickup trucks with anti-aircraft guns on the back. They were four-door pickups, if you would. All of them had a some kind of big armament on the back, and they were a stream nonstop coming out of the port, right on the road, right in front of our hotel, nonstop for over a day. And uh, uh, our hotel was the only one that had food and electricity still operating. 
And uh, when we knew we had to get out of there, because there was no attempt by the U.S. government, and they knew we were there to help us in any way when we My tried to. been calling the, the State yeah. Department day in and day out. They no no reply, nothing. When we requested help, we never even got an answer. And uh, so finally, the the one day the there was fighting inside the hotel. There was fighting. There was gunfire in the lobby. We went up to our our room. Uh, locked the door, the, the front desk called and they said, there's a, uh, an assassin on your floor. Don't open your door. Don't open your door for any reason. Barricade it. And, uh, so then we knew we had to get out of there. The Russian ambassador called, I guess it was that afternoon and he talked to Joanne and he said, uh, I know he, you're he not. He knew us. Yeah, he, he knew us. us. He said, uh, I know you're not going to get any help from your government, but the governor of Malta is sending over a rescue ship. They've already sent it over. And, uh, Pick up the I've added your names to the list. So you've got two spots on that ship. And so we were down in the lobby and, uh, we were talking to people there and, and a, a man approached us, good looking, tall, blonde headed guy. His name is, is, uh, Tony Hay. He's the FIFA coach from Germany in Libya. And he said, are you all Americans? We said, yes. Are you going to get out of here? Something we're going to try. He said, can I go with you? And we said, okay. Next, the, the sister of the president of Mauritania approached us. We had, we had met her. We didn't know who she was, except that she was in Libya trying to help the Libyans. She said, uh, are you, do you have any way to get out here? And we told her about the rescue ship. She said, can I go with you? So we added her to the list. Then a Bahraini prince approached us. He had with him a ne'er-do-well from Texas who was trying to sell guns to anybody that'd buy them. And we added those two guys, and then one of the workers from the hotel wanted to try to get out, too. So we joined, called the ambassador back and said, can you add five more names to the list, which he did, and then and uh, confirmed it by fax to the hotel. The prime minister's uh, his aide, the lady, she sent me an email and confirmed everybody that was on the list and gave us her phone number so we could call her to find out where the ship was. And then we talked the hotel into loaning us their van and... Uh, the van, they, she put two, the, the gal that was running the hotel put two, uh, Libyans, one as driver and one as shotgun to, to drive us. And they were instructed to tell anybody at these checkpoints because there were Al Qaeda and Muslim Brotherhood checkpoints about every hundred meters up and down all the roads. It was a complete war zone. And, uh, so they were to tell these Al Qaeda that we were, uh, reporters, newspaper people. And, uh, she said, that way, you won't get any trouble because the reporters have been lying for them forever, so they'll probably let you through. They knew you, so we, yeah. If you were reporters, they knew you'd be on their side. Exactly. Right. So exactly. we got to the first one. They tell the story. These guys, Allah, bar shoot their AK-47 in the air, let us go to the next one. And I mean, they're every hundred meters. And we're trying to get directions from the, from this, uh, aide to the minister, prime minister of, of Malta about where the ship is. And we go 42 miles east on the coast highway. Imagine every little bit Al Qaeda. And we got all the way down there to the end. And she said, no, 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 it's back at the port in Tripoli. So we turned around and went all the way back. And then got back and there was nothing in the port. We went into the port, nothing there. We came back out and we started back in. She said, oh, it's, it's at a little fishing village about so-and-so and so-and-so. And the driver said, yeah, that's right back where we were, 42 miles out there. So we go all the way back, and when we get there, we can't find any rescue ship. And so we we stopped to ask one of the 
guys looked kind of an official at one of those stop points. And he said, oh, yeah, he said, I'm from this village. He said, we'll go in and, and we'll help you find it. So they took us into this little village, and the streets kept getting smaller and smaller. Then we turned down an alleyway, and uh, it's so narrow that you can't open the doors. And when it finally opens up, it's at a mosque. And I've got to tell you, all the atrocities were being committed in mosques. The rape of the women. When they, when they captured anybody, they take them to a mosque. They were boiling men in oil and water. They were raping women. They were using the mosques as their Drugs, as their alcohol, uh, center for weapons. for uh, abuses. So when we got to this mosque, we knew we were finished. Thank God those were friendly people. They offered us water. They tried to help us. Now, we'd been in this van by that time 12 hours. And so uh, they said, no, we'll take you back. We know right where it is. And so they took us back, twisty, turning out of this little town to this fishing camp, if you would. And we're on a, a uh, satellite phone talking to Malta. She's telling us where we should be. That's where we are. What she didn't tell us is that Al-Qaeda had fired on the, on the ship, and it was moored three miles out, was not, was not allowed to come in. And what they'd sent in was two tugboats that were sitting there with their engines running, got all their lights and everything out, and they weren't speaking to anybody. We were within 100 yards of them. And we didn't see them, and they didn't, and and they didn't know, motion to us. So we finally gave up and went all the way back in. We went into the port of Tripoli again, and this time, they held us in the port for about an hour, and then uh, fifty or more of these little cars came in from all directions. Three or four of these bearded bastards, pardon my French, and all up to their AK-47s. They pulled up around us, put their guns right in our face, and the big, tall, hard-looking guy. He said, your game is up. We know who you are. And he had a list with our names on it. And they, t- they took us then to their torture center, which was the, the Mahari Radisson Blue Hotel. It had no electricity or lights. They were holding us in the, in the lobby, and they were bringing in wounded soldiers. Evidently, the emergency electricity was working for the elevator because they dragged in these wounded soldiers in soldiers' fatigues, put them on the elevator, and they'd end up in the mezzanine. A couple minutes later, and then we would start to hear these sounds where they were being tortured literally to death. Sounds like no one should ever want to hear in their entire lives. That was happening right over our head. We couldn't see them, but we could hear them. They took our passports. They took everything. This went on for a long time, and we knew we were in trouble. They kept bringing more uh, Al-Qaeda and Muslim, Muslim Brotherhood officials in. To see the spoils. We were the spoils, you know. They parade them in front of and, us. And uh, uh, some of them were military, some of them weren't. Every one of them, the last one, had alcohol on their breath. One guy that spoke real good English came in and started pointing his finger at each one of us. I know you were you were on the Shakir show. You worked with Gaddafi's son. You were this. You were, you know, going around accusing each one of us. And, uh, uh, of course, I was demanding they give us our passports back. And let us out there because we were Americans, and after all, the Americans had been helping us. They had no reason to be abusing us. Mm-hmm. And uh, finally, after after all one day, the next morning, this big, tall, fat, bald-headed, bearded so-and-so wearing a dress came in there, walked in, looked down his nose at us, and said something in Arabic, and then walked off towards the coffee shop. And, uh, of course, Joanne and I did not, didn't know what he said, but the other people that spoke Arabic they all turned real light and got very, very nervous. They and looked uh, like, They looked like mannequins. They were yeah, frozen. A little while later, they finally got our passports back to us. They had uh, wiped 
our hard drive on our computer. And uh, so uh, I was demanding that they take us. We now knew that the rescue ship, that there were two tugboats sitting there waiting for us. And I was bound to determine if we could to get to that that uh, fishing village and get on those tugboats and get to the salvation ship, you know. <coughs> and uh, so when they gave us all the passports and everything back, then the driver, uh, another man came from our hotel. He came in and told the driver that he was replacing him as the driver. And we knew this guy. His English was perfect. He was never very friendly, but he his English was always real good. If we had a problem with our Internet or something, he was real sharp to fix it. Well, uh, I'm demanding all this stuff, and he, he stops, and he says, no. He said, this this van is not going there. He said, the van's going back to the Corinthian. And uh, I'm raising hell, and, and he pulls Joanne off to the side, and he, he said, I know you all. Go ahead and tell me what he, he said. He pulled me off to the side because Jimmy was adamant that we are going to go to the ship. He was angry. You know, we'd been held there at gunpoint and threatened and interrogated and all kinds of stuff. And uh, I'm a Texan, you know. Anyway, he pulled me, pulled me off to the side, and he said, I need to tell you something. I said, okay. He said, I can still remember this like it was yesterday. He said, what your husband didn't understand the imam say was that when you take him to the rescue ship, they've set up a kill zone two blocks that way under the overpass. You're to be killed, chopped up, and burned, and it will be blamed on Gaddafi. He said, the reason I'm telling you this is he said, I've watched you. You've been here three months. All you're trying to do is help the Libyan people. And it's not right that this should happen to you. So I'm going to, I'm here to try to take you the other direction. And he said, but we need to speak to your husband. And so I went over and I told Jimmy, you need to listen to what this man has to say. Of course, when he told him that, he said, I guess we're going back to the other hotel. Now, this guy was Al-Qaeda. He was their plant inside the hotel. That's why he was never friendly with us. But God touched his heart and had him do that. I'm telling you, if you look cross-eyed at Al-Qaeda or Muslim Brotherhood, they kill you. If they had known that he had told us that, then he'd have been finished. Yeah. So I said, okay, well, we're going to follow you. And he said, he said, now then, he said, uh, how much money do you all have? He said, because these guys are being paid 2500 a head to kill you and then another 1000 each to chop you up and burn you. So that was seven of us. be 3500 times seven. Nobody had any money but me, and I had about $16,900 left. I gave him all that money, and I said, go do what you can. And so he went down there and negotiated for them to keep their mouth shut, really, because uh, uh, nobody would know that we were alive or dead unless they said something. And being paid, uh, they knew they were going to get another shot at us because that didn't get us out of Libya. That just got us out of that kill zone that night. And so uh, he came back up. We loaded up the van, and he went by back roads, sneaked in and out of alleys, and got us back to the Corinthia Hotel. That's where we had started, you know, the day and a half, two days before that. And uh, it was more than two days. And so we got back there. We now, the first miracle had delivered us out of the kill zone. And then Fatima, too, said she had been talking with uh, one of the men from from uh, Mohammed was his name. And he's Al-Qaeda, but he was, she said he's really not a bad guy, but he's the one that's coordinating the exodus of the refugees from Tripoli to Benghazi on this uh, UN, immigration UN immigration ship. And she said, he said that he, he's watched you all and that he would like to help. He'd like to come meet us. So he came to our hotel, and he was, re- he was really a nice guy. And he said, you all are on the list. You're in a lot of trouble. He said, but uh, he said, I know you all are good people. I'm going to take you in my van 
to the boat. I'm going to get you through all the stop points. I'm going to get you onto the boat. And he said, then I'm going to have them deliver you to a hotel in Benghazi because if you're taken to one of the, the refugee camps on the border with Egypt, that's where all these people are going to end up. He said, your names will be on that list. And he said, so I'm going to, going to take you in my van and see that you end up in a hotel in Benghazi. And he said, there's a U.S. office there. There's a Euro, European Union office there. And I told Fatima, she speaks Spanish and so do I. That's how we were able to communicate. I said, hell, that's the, the head of the snake. She said, no, I've been talking to my friends over there, and they said all the murderers are over here killing people in Tripoli, and that Benghazi is basically empty. So um, good to his word. He picked us up in his van. He took, to, took us through all the checkpoints, got us onto the ship. Now, we lost one person, the gal that worked for the for the hotel. That that first trip had been too much for her. She said, I'm, I'll stay here rather than try, try to go with you all again. <laughs> and so we got on that ship, and then it was – Two days of the worst boat ride you can imagine. This was a converted car carrier, had two bathrooms. There were over 300 people on the ship. Oh no food. There was some. There was some out of date fruit juice, hot water, moldy bread. That was all that was on the ship. A million degrees outside. And it was hot. No, no curtains or anything on any of the windows. Hottest part of the summer in the Mediterranean, and plenty of waves to keep you awake or whatever. And uh, you drink this fruit juice, and then immediately you're doing the green apple quick step. And so, you know, with with, with 300 people in two bathrooms oh and sick and everything else, it was a mess. And so um, uh, it was two full days, and we finally got to Benghazi. And uh, when the ship pulled in, they, they brought dump trucks and threw everybody's luggage in these dump trucks and then put the people in buses, and he took everybody but the, the six of us headed them towards Egypt uh, for another 18 or 20-hour tough ride, and we were taken the, to the Tabisti Hotel. Yeah. Two uh, UN guys showed up yeah. in blue shirts, and they said, we're supposed to take care of you guys, so they did. And so we, Joanne and I, as soon as we got there, we went up to the U.S. office in that hotel. The guy that was there barely even spoke English. We told him we needed help, we needed to get out of there, and he says, I'm not here to help you, I'm just here to help the rebels. And we said, yes, but we're U.S. citizens. He said, I can't help you. I only deal with rebels. So he shuffed us off. We went downstairs to the European Union office. That guy was much nicer. He said, gosh, I wish I could help you, but you're, you have nothing to do with the European Union. Therefore, bye. And uh, when we got back to the, to the lobby of the hotel, the concierge at the hotel had looked at the six of us and decided that we weren't rebels and that we needed a little <laughs> more help, you know. And he called the ranking guy with the NTC that was left. That was the National Transitional Council, which was the phony government who was installed by the U.S. And the number three guy was in, in Benghazi. And the hotel called him. He sent his security guy over there to meet us. That guy didn't speak any English, but uh, he, rec- he, he was really impressed with the Bahraini prince. And uh, so he called his boss and said, yes, you need to come meet these guys. When the boss came, perfectly dressed, perfect English, very spit and polished, if you would. And uh, he began talking to us. And in those tribal cultures, it's really important that you try to establish some kind of link with somebody in their tribe or whatever. It's like if you know somebody in somebody's family, yeah. they feel more comfortable. And we asked him where he was from. He told us which tribal. It just so happened our best friends in Libya were from that same tribe. So I gave them 
uh, I gave him their name and their kids' names and all that stuff. And he said, yes, I know them. They're not, they're not, the, uh, okay. they're okay. They're not of the highest importance of the tribe, but that broke the ice. Hmm. And he said, how long has it been since you all have had anything to eat? I guess we were all, you know, licking the floor. Been five days and it was Ramadan. And he said, well, uh, they will have a big buffet here for breakfast this evening. He said, I can't be with you. I need to be with my family, but I'm going to invite you, uh, to dinner at this buffet. And then he said, then I'm leaving my security man with you. And I've, I've instructed him to try to get you on the plane that's leaving tonight, taking wounded military to Tunisia. And he will stay with you and he'll make his best efforts to get you on that plane. So we did have breakfast and then the security guy, uh, uh, took us to the airport a few hours later, and he put us at the front of the line, fighting everybody that was trying to get on that plane, you know. Uh, got us our boarding passes, got everything cleared, and then took us to the executive lounge at the airport in Benghazi. And a real nice air-conditioned place, not any crowds around there or anything. He said it was better. We were out of the, out of the sight of everybody trying to get on the plane in case some folks didn't get on that plane. They might might not like the fact that we were getting on it. it might be trouble. There was a plane, he said, carrying wounded soldiers because they were allowed to fly anywhere they wanted. No where, fly zone didn't where, affect them. No fly zone didn't oh, when affect you say, them. When you say soldiers, you mean uh, U.S. black rebels? Yes. Yes. Right. Yeah. But that was a lie. That was a lie. There were no wounded soldiers. We didn't see one. But right. in this executive lounge, uh, while we were there, uh, gosh, another 8 or 10 or 12 people came in. Most of them uh, officials of the new government, all of them spoke trash. They were they were either employees, 20-year employees of World Bank or IMF or whatever. None of them had been in Libya in their adult lives. So they a bunch of them had been at Langley. You know, they were all shields yeah. for the Zionists. And they're, they're talking this trash about how now Libya is going to really be developed and the, the Libyans are really going to have freedom and there's really going to be democracy. And I asked this one guy. He was, he was going to be in charge of all oil and gas and everything. And I said, well, what exactly is your plan to go back and put all these wells back into operation that have been shut down? I said, you know, they got 18, 19% paraffin, and when you stop producing them, they just plug up. He said, don't worry about that. We'll take care of that. So they had, you know, nobody had any expertise in anything. Mm-hmm. But long and short, they, they, uh, the plane was supposed to be in at 10.30. Yeah. We didn't, at 2.30, we got on the plane, but. It's interesting because there was no tower working there. There was nothing. It was dark in the middle of the night. They walked us out on the tarmac in the dark. We got on the plane, and the plane just took off as soon as we were on it. Yeah. The plane, the, the, it was the most raggedy-ass old plane, old 727 you'd ever seen. It was made when Hitler was a private, and all the doors were missing on the, you know, the overhead storage bins. They were all missing. And when you look down between your feet at the floor, you could see daylight. When the damn thing. When the damn thing took off, it rattled and rolled and rocked and and shook and everything, you know. But it was it was like riding on a on a well, golden said, carpet. The pilot said, you know, we're going to stay low because uh, it's a possibility we get shut down if they see us. Mm. So we went. To, we ended up in Tunisia at 4:30 in the morning, and um, from there, we didn't get any help from the U.S. at all. U.S. Embassy, there's no help. I mean, what's, oh no. No, we called the U.S. Embassy. They said, no, if, call your family and see if they'll give us some money. We'll manage the money for you. Well, it's exactly it, the same situation uh, recently in, in Yemen. Well, there was a bunch of American yeah. citizens in Yemen when Saudi and the U.S. basically were bombing the place to 
back to the Stone Age, and, and, and American citizens had to appeal to the Russians, and the Russians had to get the Americans out because the American uh, consulate or embassy or officials there exactly. were like, eh, whatever. Exactly. Yeah. And, and if you got money from them, they took your passport. You didn't get it back till you paid them back. Jeez. So and they were going to put us in a hotel, a 70-mile, a $70 uh, cab ride from that hotel to the airport. We were a three dollar cab ride where we were, and uh, I said this doesn't make any sense. So Joanne's daughter actually bought us a couple of one way tickets from from Tunisia to Rome, and then we used our miles with British Airways. Once they figured out how bad a shape we were in, they were really nice. They uh, got us a plane that night. They gave us food vouchers for dinner. Put us in a nice hotel in London. Got us on a flight out into Houston. And uh, when we got to Houston, they let Joanne go through. And, and understand, I had an external hard drive that I had secreted on myself. And that's the way we got all our information out because when we were captured by al-Qaeda, you know, al-Qaeda, they won't touch a woman. Well, and, unless they're going to rape Unless they're going to rape or kill her. And they didn't touch me. They touched everybody else, but not me. And, and uh, when I got into Houston, they let me go right through. I sat there with all the information they were looking for with Jimmy for three hours. The FBI interrogated him. I was sitting down in the luggage. Uh, waiting for him. They, they took my bag apart, took the lining out of it. You know, they had three screens. I was seeing the back of three screens, and the guy interrogating me was obviously getting getting questions from three different groups. He'd ask me the question. I'd answer the guy, type, and then they'd throw another three hours just went on. And how did you – who paid for your trip? How did you get there? What were you doing there? Who paid for your trip? How did you get there? You know, this went on and on and on, three hours. But it's – and then. It sounds like you guys were braced for this kind of interrogation coming back. Um, we, we thought we, we were, <laughs> listen, we we were, so, were going to say, good, good, we're happy you made it we back were safe. So, we were so glad to be alive. Right. Listen, in, in Rome, I finally, at, I was at my nerve's end, and when the guy from British Airways, their, their executive lounge, which I was a member, wouldn't let us in there and was going to have us thrown out of the airport, you know, we had, again, we hadn't eaten in some time, and, and I said, uh, I broke down. I said, you know, please, have a little milk of human kindness run through your veins and let us at least turn on our, our computer here and get on the Internet. Let us have a cup of coffee and, a, and some orange juice or something. Please help us. And finally, the guy snapped and figured out we weren't bad guys because the Italians had let us through security. I told them what happened to us. They let us all the way they through. Us, we went the back way through security. We went backwards and, and, through it. Yeah, and finally this guy realized that we really were in trouble, and he was a jewel after that. He absolutely plowed through all the red tape and got us out of there, and you know, God bless him. He really helped us. So, I mean, the, the, the guys, the way you tell that story, I mean, with Al-Qaeda and you know, being threatened with being killed and chopped up, and I mean, you tell it in such a just a matter of fact way, but were you not freaking out at any point? I mean, oh hell, yes. I, I ruined four <laughs> pair of underwear. Listen, I have my my memory is so vivid of it, it's like it's yesterday. Because when you if you're standing with somebody in a dark lobby of a hotel room in a corner, and the guy says to you, uh, "If you go that way, there's a you're going to be killed and chopped up and burned." It's like somebody poured cold water on you. And right. you also got to understand for a hundred days. We had seen these atrocities. We'd already been through culture shock, through they chopped up you know what was in our mind. What was in our mind's eye was terrible. We had seen it. Yeah, they chopped up a guy right under our hotel window, and we saw him cut off his head, both arms, one leg, and their knife got dull, and they couldn't chop his other leg off. And then the next morning, there were thirty-eight heads lined up above his. 
I mean, we saw this with our own. We're witnesses. What What's really unbelievable is is uh, how evil those people are that we were funding and arming and training. You know how 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 who. Who does things like this, you know? So the, the, the is forget ISIS. The real head choppers is the U.S. government. And oh, yeah. Right. CIA and Mossad. That every time we were told in Libya at one point in time, anytime you see someone's head chopped off, that's CIA method. And you go back in history and look at all the times this has taken place. And, you know, the CIA, a lot of the retired CIA now are outing them. And they said, this is what we do. This is how we train. This is psychological warfare. We make it so bad the people of those countries that they give up without a fight. The more heinous the crimes, the quicker they give up. But let me tell you mm-hmm. that after we got back, the story continues on forever, but after we got back, we, we tried to rebuild our business. We really thought we were just going to go back to our business. Little did we know that we'd been targeted and soft-killed and, and destroyed. There was not going to be any more business for us because no matter what we tried to do, it was just turned down. Finally, uh, I called Washington, D.C. so many times to try to talk to them about what was going on in Libya and give them information. Uh, Tara Dahl, who was the aide to Michelle Bachman, called me back. She said she was very interested in what we had to say. And since we, there's a whole story behind her, too, she turned out to be CIA. She's the one who brought all the intelligence into our house. She introduced me to the first guy who said, you have to be, uh, he's, he was out in California. He, he was a, he was a police detective on loan to the FBI, to the FBI for terrorist their terrorist task force. He'd been all over the world. Yeah, and that, he said, he said, your story is unbelievable. You should have been debriefed immediately when you got back. Uh, and you need to be debriefed. And so he called the DIA who sent in, uh, one of their agents, Eric, uh, Maddox. Eric Maddox, who came to our house. He, he identified himself as Kevin Davis to us. But his real name is Eric Maddox, and he came many times to our what house. Was, what was Tim's name? Just so you all know, we Tim give names. Hunt. Tim Hunt was his name. San Francisco detective, piece of garbage, you know. And uh, then Eric Maddox, who who gave us a false name. And you don't come into somebody's home who's trying to help your government and give them a false name and play this game. Well, that's what he did. So and I'm not happy about that. When when he couldn't, well. What he wanted to do was extract a lot of our information from us. They kept trying to get Joanne's hard drive. Yeah, they they really wanted that. He said, I want you to print it all out. If I pay for it, will you print it all out? I said, I can't print it out. out. A lot of it's video, and I I didn't give it to him anyway. But he interviewed some of the tribes on on Skype. They gave us In our home, we linked up Skype with them. They they, gave us a test of 14 questions for the tribes. They said, because nobody... In our history of the military, we've never had anybody infiltrate into the tribes of any country. Mm-hmm. He said, and I think this is a mistake. That's what he told us. He said, but, but we don't know how to do it. We can't get into the tribes. Yeah, said, prove that you're really talking to Yeah, tribe. so they gave us 14 questions, and we had those questions answered in 24 hours by the tribes. And he said, my handlers are blown away. He said that nobody, nobody has this kind of information. Nobody can pick up a phone and get information like you can. But. They were not willing to do anything to help us, to work with us, or anything. They just they became vacuum cleaners. They were and just sucking information. They would information. not help the Libyans either. They would not help the Libyans. The Libyans said, uh, I have the head, the Libyans told him, the general on the phone, I have the head of all the Al-Qaeda guys. If you will send your snipers in or your drones, we can get rid of all the heads. Ah, uh, we can't do that. And he said, okay, well, then just send us the weapons, and we'll take care of it ourselves. And they're oh, we, it's against the United States law we for us to give weapons. weapons to anybody. Yeah, right. It became a joke. You know, a and and joke. Here's, here's something else. We gave them latitude and longitude of where the Al-Qaeda leaders spent the night. We gave them latitude and longitude of where, the, where they had dug holes and buried all their weapons stores. 
we gave them latitude and longitude of where their training centers were. In fact, the one that was the most damning is they had a brand new training center, mega training center out in the Derna area, far east Libya, and it had 1,400 uh, in trainers, you know, trainees there all the time. They're rotating yeah. sometimes four or five thousand. Going out into Syria. This is their brand new center. So we gave that information to Eric Maddox. It had never been given to anybody anywhere. The tribes, spies, gave it, the tribal leaders gave it to us. We on, gave it to Eric Google Maddox. Maps, they, they absolutely gave it to us. Pinpointing. Four days later, an alert comes that they're to evacuate that training center, take the weapons they can carry with them, sell the other ones locally. And when that happened, we told Eric Maddox, how in the hell did this happen? You know, we give it to you, and instead of you all going after that camp, somebody in the government told him what happened. He said, well, you know, uh, agenda, this came from Eric Maddox, Defense Intelligence Agency, said agenda in the United States is being set by Muslim Brotherhood. He also told us that the translators, he said, well, I met a lot of Muslim Brotherhood. They're pretty nice guys. He said, there are translators. So the official translators for the U.S. intelligence is Muslim Brotherhood. Wow. So it sounds, like, next, it sounds like Maddox took what you said and warned. Sure he did. Yeah. yeah. Well, not him personally. No. He probably ran it up. He said, to, do you think you think you've given me that information caused that to happen? I said, do you think? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it ended up in the offices in, at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Sure. And the Muslim Brotherhood guy there told him to leave. Well, so the next next thing I get a call from Tara Dahl, and she said that the Blaze, Glenn Beck's organization, a guy named Joe Weasel, would like to speak to me, and they'd like to do a two-hour documentary on our story because there's nobody escapes from al-Qaeda, nobody, and lives to tell about it. So <clears throat> Joe Weasel called me and made an appointment. He was really interested in talking to us. He brought his... Uh, and three days later, he showed up with his film crew or his producers, I guess, to, in, to interview us. And he said he brought uh, security for us because he said, you're in more trouble from this government than you ever were. From more danger. More danger than you ever were from mm. al-Qaeda. And he said, I brought a lady here uh, for, for she's someone I work with, and she's going to be your interface for security, going to set up uh, protocols for Internet and everything and, and lay protection around us. Her name is Nikki Barakal. Maybe. So, yeah. That's the name she gave us. Yeah. So we talked to them for six hours. They took our story and said, wow, it's a huge story. They said, Glenn, I want to have you on his show. And as, as they were leaving, they wanted our entire hard drive. <laughs> Joanne gave them about 25 gigabytes of, of stuff that wasn't new. And uh, they were going to come back three days later with their film crews. And uh, we hadn't heard from them in and, and, and two days. So Joanne called uh, Weasel, and that's a good name for him, Call mm-hmm. Weasel. And uh, – Instead of him calling back, this Nikki Bear call called back, and she said, uh, I've killed this uh, project because you all are already talking to intelligence agencies. You need to continue doing that. Uh, also, you need to forget about Libya and start your life over today, or you won't have a life. And I said, that sounds like a threat. She okay. raised her voice, and she said, you stand down and do exactly what I'm telling you, or you won't have a life. And that's coming from a journalist? No, 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 this CIA. She was CIA. And and this is also the gal that told us. That we were targeted. That that when I came in, we came into Houston, I had been targeted at that. Joanne and I had been targeted. We had been blacklisted, and we had been soft killed. She said that that was why. And she said, that's why you've not had any business opportunities. That's why all your bank accounts have been drained. That's why. Everything's happened to you is because you've been soft killed. And she said, you should be happy. All they did was soft kill you. And I said, well, 
You know, what's better, what's worse than that? She said they do a terminal kill. And that's when you just disappear. Nobody ever hears from you again. And I said, so we're supposed to be happy and thankful that we've only been soft killed. You know, by that time, we had sold everything we owned. We sold my, my antique car collection, our houses, everything. We'd liquidated all our, our uh, assets. We had taken our 30 scientists and given them all a, a nice stipend because it wasn't their fault we went to Libya. If we had known we were going to be soft-killed, I would have given them half as much. They would have been happy. We could have had enough of a nest egg to really start over. But, you know, how our business is great, our technology is great, we were going to start over again immediately. Didn't happen. So Glenn Beck has been compromised. That was that was real obvious. Well, uh, uh, <laughs> a shell. I mean, geez, oh, no yeah. kidding. No kidding. Anyway, but, you know, Dr. Jerome Corsi has uh, been writing articles with our information for two years now. Over two He's years. World Net Daily. He's written 40 articles based on information we provided him. Three of the documents we brought forward have been read into the congressional record. The big one is the one where Morsi came from Libyan Security, where Morsi was involved with the attack on Chris Stevens in, in funding and train and uh, organizing it. And there's another document that came that was a big one that. Uh, it's from the U.S. Embassy. When when Egypt took their country back from the Muslim Brotherhood, when they threw Morsi out, uh, they went in. They went into Morsi's, uh, of course, his desk and found a bunch of documents. One of them was a document from the U.S. Embassy where Muslim Brotherhood leaders had gone in and accepted or picked up cash, anywhere from five hundred thousand to eight hundred fifty thousand dollars in cash, and signed their name for the money. And we have seven, that list. Seven, Seventeen or eighteen of them. And those guys were all arrested after that on, on charges of being spies for the United States. They just finished the trials. Morsi and three or four of the top Muslim Brotherhood leaders in Egypt had been sentenced to death. And the rest of them on our list that we provided them is they're, they're going to be in prison for the rest of their lives. So, you know, the information that tribe, the tribes have provided us has been actionable intelligence according to the agency. Yeah. Egypt, I'm very proud of. They put Obama and Hillary Clinton up on charges of terrorism at the international court for what they did to Egypt. Mm-hmm. And they have the proof. Of course, it may never be heard, but at least they did something. Right. That's you talking there about the uh, during the Egyptian so-called revolution as well? Yeah, that was, that was again, no revolution. That was another false flag operation. Yeah, yeah. it's what the Egyptians took to the street, 30 million of them, to, to throw Morsi out. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's when General Sisi uh, stepped forward and he said, you know, uh, I asked my people, what do you want me to do? Because I work for I work for the Egyptian people. And they said, he needs to, we don't want him as our, our president. He's already torn up the Constitution, throw him out. So he said he went up and asked him to step down. He wouldn't step down, so they marched him out. They arrested him. Also, in his, in his private safe, they found documents where Obama had gifted $8 billion, that's with a B, dollars to Muslim Brotherhood so they could buy half the Sinai Peninsula so that the Muslim Brotherhood could have a homeland. So what's going on in Libya today? Libya is, is uh, it's, it's, it, listen, they have used Libya so much, they right use so much uh, depleted uranium that the incidence of, of, uh, of birth babies defects. with birth defects that are so bad they die the first day. Uh, 25% of all babies born now in Libya die the first day because of the of, because of the depleted uranium. The incidence of, of uh, heart attacks, uh, diabetes, 405% increases. Uh, 
every place in the country that you look at all the kids and dogs glow in the dark from all the uranium. Um, the country's destroyed. Uh, and the United States, you know, they, they have so much oil production, so much capacity and so few people that that's still a place that the Zionists, uh, hope to maintain. So they'll have an oil and gas supply. We're not talking about the regular Jews. We're talking about the Zionists. Zionists. That's right. different. Than that. And, uh, they are trying like hell to hang on to that. So the United States every day sends in weapons and mercenaries they're, they're, into Libya, yeah, ISIS. They're funding them through Turkey. Yeah. And in, fact, in fact, the Libyan uh, government or Libyan army fired on a Turkish ship going trying to go into Darna yeah. recently. And the Greeks captured one with all these weapons on it. Right. Uh, going into Libya. But the, the tribes are, the tribal military council is working with the Libyan army to take their country back. They're doing the best they can. Until about a few months ago, the U.N. still had an embargo on the Libyan army receiving any weapons. Mm-hmm. It's okay for ISIS to receive them. Right. But the Libyan army could. So that, and, you know, on, on ISIS, that ISIS is a corporation started in Arizona by John McCain and 60 other uh, political leaders from all over the world. Oh, yeah? And so that's who ISIS is. And uh, was it last week the President of the United States went to Congress and asked for funding for ISIS, the equivalent of Social Security and health care and supplying with air conditioners and all all the benefits of Social Security. He's asked that of ISIS. No, of the Congress. Ask Congress to give it to ISIS. Yeah. That's the President of the United States. Well, Libya has two million in exile right now still and these people suffer every day there's nothing for them they're just in tunisia and egypt and around you know unless they had some funds or family to help them they're really suffering are, are and these the people who are fleeing in ships to, to no, no those are immigrants from africa those aren't libyans the majority i would say 99 percent are not libyans no those Libyan. those the african the flight out of africa into europe had, had been going on forever and really libya had been the buffer uh, they they employed Libya employed about two and a half million foreigners as workers in Libya, and they really were a buffer. And that arrangement had been made and, and maintained by Gaddafi forever. And of course, when Gaddafi and the Libyan government went away, then those those migrants were now it's just trying just a sieve, you know. Right. They just they just continue to come. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting that a little bit of truth just eked out recently in uh, in the mainstream, even from at a political level, where the Italian prime minister um, just you know he's complaining basically about the the immigrants from Africa coming in because a lot of them are coming into Italy, you know, and he's saying right. that if the EU doesn't do something about this, then Italy will take its own action basically, and there's going to be a problem for Europe, and he he went as far as saying that. You know, this problem is really caused by the EU uh, participation in the bombing of Libya four years ago. I mean, he came out and said that, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's pretty sad what they did. You know, where are they protecting the civilians now? Because there are people being tortured and killed in Libya every day. Um, You know, the the black cities, the cities of black people that were raised, four or five of them are just gone. Those people are all homeless. And those 128 mass graves, most of those people are black. We went to all the black leaders here in the United States and asked them, you know, you should rise up against this happening. None of them, none of them heeded that. None of them did anything about it. You know, it's a real travesty because the media, the media owns. Libya uh, has one elected parliament right now. It's it's in Tobruk. And the reason it's in Tobruk is because the puppet government that was set up by the U.S. was full of criminals and, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. ne'er-do-wells, 
the Libyan people for two years didn't they couldn't control anything. They had no control. They were they used militias roaming the streets like gangs with the guns to try to control things. And of course they were all thieves and, and rapers and who knows what. Um, when when they had an election because it was demanded by the UN, well it has to be an election in Libya because we put democracy in there. So there was election all the Muslim Brotherhood were voted out, every single one of them. There was not one radical elected even though half the people of Libya didn't even get to vote because they were outside. Well, they didn't accept that in, in Tripoli. The guy who's the, the criminal leader there, he said, well, I don't accept that. And you because he's, he's best buddies with, with uh, John McCain yeah. and Obama. Yeah, so he said, you come here, you're, they started blowing up the houses of the people who were elected, of kidnapping their wives, shooting them. So they had to take their parliament to Tobruk to the other side, to the east side of Libya. Hmm. So they claim they're still a government in Tripoli. They're not. Right. They're not. The, only, the only government is in Tobruk, and it's still a very weak government because it it's hampered by uh, all the fighting that's going on all the time. All the, you know, and all the, and the ambassador from the United States, Deborah Jones, the only person she likes to meet with is Al Qaeda and Muslim Brotherhood. The the big Mizrata militia, Libya Don, they call themselves, which is full of Muslim Brotherhood and Ansar Al Sharia, is the people she works with all the time. And she's been seen holding hands with him, which is a real obscene event for a, a woman that's not married to a man. Also, they the the U.S. found found their way clear to appoint appoint an ambassador for Libya. This is Libyan ambassador to the UN. They appointed this Spanish guy has nothing to do with Libya, and he's a big time Zionist. He's also Muslim Brotherhood. He's Muslim Brotherhood also. The reason the uh, U.S. ambassador to Libya. Uh, it's only shaking hands with Al-Qaeda because Al-Qaeda is, are the only ones who are going to uh, be open to basically giving all of Libyan's oil resources to U.S. companies or U.S. corporations, right? Sure. Well, you know, that's that's a big part of it. But, you know, the, the reasons, everybody looks at the oil, but that was the three reasons I gave you the reasons to blow up Libya. But they don't want, they want Libya destabilized because yeah. if the tribes get back in control of Libya, then they, they are back to the way they were under Gaddafi because that's the people of Libya. And you can't have a country where the people were enjoying the wealth of the country like what happened in Libya because that make the Zion, the Zionist plan to dominate everybody uh, not work. Right. You can't have so, a democracy is what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, that's the reason. Libya is a very strong, strong country when it's when it's you know Gaddafi made it a very strong resource. For not Africa. not for fighting, but no. you know, internally it was no. it was real strong, well supported by that's, the people. That's the problem, and the real like the real tragedy of it, or one of the tragedies is, as you were mentioning there, you, when you tried to get the, the the tribes and stuff to kind of rise up and do something about it, um, it's hard to get a peace loving people to to fight, you know, against this kind of psychopathy and. Hedgehog. But it finally happened. Let me tell you what else they did. This was in uh, this was after 9/11. The tribes put forward an official plea and offer to the United States government, Congress, and everybody. They said, "If you will just stop supporting Al Qaeda and Muslim Brotherhood and Ansar Al Sharia in our country, then we, the tribes of Libya, will clean our country of all these radical Islamists." And then we will join hands with the other tribes in all the other countries and rid the world of radical Islam. Made the official offer. Never responded to by anybody. Right. Says it all, really. Because that's never what the U.S. government wanted.
never. No. But you know, they, they, the, the U.S. government have shunned everybody. The Pope, the last Pope, three times he made an appeal uh, to the NATO and UN to stop bombing Libya, and he and Cardinal Turksom and another Monsignor, the the three of them, would go form a peace committee in Libya, and they would mediate the negotiations for for peace between the fighting factions in Libya. Three times. One one time to the UN and twice to NATO. The Pope made that offer. They never responded to his offer. So they're not just thumbing their nose at the Libyans, they're thumbing their nose at everybody because the Zionists have yeah. forced uh, this, this 85 individuals own 70% of everything. So we're all their chattel, we're all their cattle, you know, we're their slaves, and uh, how can we possibly... Uh, buck their system. You know, they tell us what to do and we're supposed we, to do it. When we were there in during the war on July 1st, they had a, a rally. They had a lot of rallies for their government. And on July 1st, they had 2 million people show up in the in the Green Square. In Tripoli. In Tripoli. And they had these uh, events all over Libya at that point in time with the green flags and supporting their government. And we were there. I have the videos of us being there, talking to the people. I have all of it. This was we, never we were reported. Led into the, into was, their control it tower. was never reported by the mainstream media. They tried to say oh, a few thousand people showed up or a thousand mm-hmm. people. But when we were getting captured by Al Qaeda at the very end of our stay in Tripoli, one of the reporters that that was the guys who interrogated they, they took UK import you know, uh, British reporters and had them interrogate us, which those guys hated it. Right said, before we were to be they killed. They said, I'm not happy about this, but I'm happy to do it because they're making me. Right before we were to be killed, they had a British film crew come in and, and record each one of us individually. Are you okay? Have you been abused? You know, are you in good shape? That's mm-hmm. because after we were dead, they were going to prove that, that it wasn't them that did it. But, but those guys, he told me, because I hate this, he said, I don't, I'm not, he said, you know, these guys are dangerous. But he told me, he said, you see this green square over here where they have all these uh, rallies and stuff? He said they have an exact mock-up in Qatar, exact mark mock-up. He said because I've been there, and that's where they film where the rebels are all uh, shouting down. Having up, having having that events. never happened in in Libya ever. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, it, the whole campaign, even before the actual fighting broke out, it something just smelled off. When they were showing images of protesters. Allegedly, and claiming well, the, the claim that Gaddafi was Gaddafi was bombing his own people was just yeah. a carbon copy of what they claimed about Iraq, and that had already been discredited by then, you know, yeah. by 2011. The whole world, the whole goddamn world, knew that the West had lied up to oh, us yeah. about Iraq. But apparently, people have got a really short memory, and as soon as they oh, yeah. the same story for uh, Gaddafi in Libya, it was like, oh, he's an evil man. I mean, I just really lose faith with the ordinary person in the world. Yeah, if the lamestream media reports it, I guess it's true. You know, we couldn't imagine. We could not imagine how in the hell South Africa and, and these other countries join hands to attack Libya. And so while we're there, near the end of the, the of August, the plenipotentiary ambassador to South Africa, his name was H.E. Dangor, ended up in our hotel because all his security crew and everybody left. So we had opportunity to, to have tea with him quite a few times, had some long discussions. And one time I asked him, I said, why in the hell did South Africa join hands to go after Libya? Because you all had always had such a good working relationship. Mm-hmm. He said, we had no choice. He said, you're Secretary of State. 
approached our government and said, if you don't join hands with us and go after, agree to go after Libya, then you'll have rebels in your backyard tomorrow. Right. He said it's like the woman had a whole closet full of rebels. She could drop down any place. That's a threat. Now then, I know that that's true because we're very, very close to the to some third echelon royal family in Kuwait. And in the early days of the fighting, we were, we, were, we were trying to get the royal family in Kuwait to bring in some rescue equipment for Libya, and they agreed to do it. And when they tried to pass the money on for that, for that $50 million worth of, of humanitarian aid, the Secretary of State told them, pass that on to Cutter. Cutter's handling all that. This is Hillary Clinton. This is Hillary Clinton. And she said, and, and since you're so interested in Libya, then you can just sign on to be on our side going after Libya. And they said, well, we're really not interested in doing that. And she said, if you don't do it, you're going to have rebels in your backyard. So she made exactly the same threat to two different sources that we verified ourselves. So, you know, the thing that's different about us, this is not – the information we have is not third-hand. We are eyewitnesses to the atrocities. We're eyewitnesses to what happened in Libya. We weren't supposed to be there. And then after they found out we were there, we weren't supposed to be out of there. This this guy from the Defense Intelligence Agency one time told us, he said, you only need to be written up in the Guinness records because nobody gets out of al-Qaeda's hands alive. And then a couple of weeks later, he said to us, he said, you know, you all weren't supposed to ever get out of North Africa. So we're alive. You know, we've had divine intervention that has saved our lives. They, he had, our Lord has protected us. You cannot imagine. Since we've been here, they, one time they planted drugs in our car. We were giving a, a seminar for the John Birch Society in Houston, and we never saw the drugs, but uh, we decided to go have the oil changed in our car and tires rotated. And that night when we were driving from Houston back east, the uh, radar guns and, and two sets of Texas Highway Patrollers followed us. And then every 10 miles, those two would pull off and other would pull on and join us. They, did they put the radar gun on our bumper? And uh, finally, we got out in the middle of nowhere, and they pulled us over, and they wanted to search the car. And I said, no, I'm not going to let you search the car. And they said, we're taking the drug dog, and if we find drug, if, if the dog marks for drugs and you're under arrest, we'll tear your car apart to find them. The dog went around the car three times, didn't mark. So the guy went to the back window, which is real unusual, and started tapping the back window of our, of our sequoia. And about the 15th time he tapped and yanked on the chain of the dog, dog went up and touched his hand. He said, he's marked for drugs. You're under arrest. <laughs> and they started looking in the car. Not much. Kind of, kind of cursory examination. But the whole time he had a, uh, one of these flip phone, uh, throwaway phones in his ear. The whole time this is a Texas Highway Patroller with a phone in his ear. You can't do any kind of searching with one hand. And after about an hour, he and the other highway patroller had been under the car 15 times each. They were digging around this one corner of the car. They had Joanne and myself separated about 50 feet on the other side of the bar ditch. I said, kind of sneaked over to her, and I said, Joanne, can you slip down there and hear what that guy is saying? He's got a phone in his ear. And she got down there, and when she got back, she said, he's saying, I'm there. That's where I'm looking. So somebody was directing him where to look. And two and a half hours later, after they had been under the car so many times, their uniform was black from crawling, crawling on their backs, he, looking he up a, underneath the frame. He had a burner phone. You know, That's what I'm talking about. And so uh, they they finally let us go. They said, well, there's been drugs in this car. The dog marked for it. And I said, I don't guess so, because believe me, with all the hell we've been through, 
We don't speed. We, didn't, we never did any drugs anyhow, but I mean, we wouldn't drink a cup of wine and get in the car. And so I said, that's just not true. And so uh, in, in thinking back, the only thing that could have happened, they planted the drugs probably when we were at the John Birch Society giving the seminar. Mm. And then when the, you never know what angels look like. When we had the oil chains, the guy that did it had tattoos from the back of his fingers all the way up both arms. And when he was underneath there changing the oil and changing the tires, he probably found something up underneath the frame. But he took it out and looked at it and said, well, hell, it's this guy kind of looks like Santa Claus. I'm taking this home with me. Right, yeah. <laughs> with a tip. You so, know? so that foiled them. You know, they've tried every nasty thing in the world to make us, yeah. you know, to either arrest us so they can turn us into their stool pigeons because we're an asset to them. Like Joanne says, the only information they get about what the tribes are doing come from us. So we're an asset to them. That's I don't think that's why they've killed us. They've threatened us four times. But they haven't killed us because I think they're getting information from us. Last time they us. got really angry at us, they called us, it was a year ago, and they said nine months after we put our DVD out, the intelligence agency seemed to find it somewhere. I don't know how it took They're real long. quick, you know. But he said, we had a big meeting of all of our intelligence agencies and watched your DVD, and, and you know, we've decided you're really bad people. You you're put our, you're the worst of the you, worst. You put our names out. You know, you, you caused us to have problems now. Our names are out there, and, and our, you know, I have to sleep with my gun now. And I said, well, you know what? You know, uh, you signed on for it. I didn't. I told the guy when he came into my house, if you want me to do anything with you guys, then you need to train us and pay us because we're not intelligence people. Oh, no, we don't do that. We're not interested in that. Uh, you know, but he said, well, you know better than to put out Michelle Bachman's name. I said, Michelle Bachman is a congressman. There's no secret about her. Obviously, she. there is a secret about her. And Tara Dahl is one of their up-and-coming spies, and they're real pissed that we put her name out. Yeah, and she's tried and to Tim contact. Hunt. She had contact with the tribes through us, and she's tried to contact them a bunch of times since then, and they won't speak to her. She's over there in Egypt at, at, from time to time wanting to talk to them. But to satisfy everybody in your audience, know that what we've said is 100% accurate, as wild as it sounds. Congressman Pete Sessions, we cornered him in November of 2014. And after we talked to him 20 minutes, he verified through the Defense Intelligence Agency and then called the head of the DIA into his office in Washington, D.C. and verified. When he called us back 10 days later, he said, I talked to the head of the DIA and he said, I want you to know that he said everything you told me. And he repeated that. He said everything you told me, blacklist, soft kill, et cetera, is all true. They have ruined you. They've admitted to it. And he said, but also the guy admitted he didn't know how two people sitting in the Woodlands, Texas, could pick up their phone and call anywhere in the world and get actionable intelligence like you two could. And Pete says, I asked him, then why didn't you make these two people your best friend instead of attacking them? And he said the guy had no answer. That wasn't 2014. That was 2013, pardon me. And uh, so we've been validated 100% by the top of the worst uh, criminal cabal of intelligence in the world, the Defense Intelligence Agency, is being completely accurate. He said our, our intelligence was certified as 100% correct. He said that's unusual. He said, but they did say that they'd hired you and that you decided you didn't want to work for them anymore. And I said, they never hired us. And he said, you never were paid by them? I said, no. I said, go ask them to show you a paycheck, a pay stub. I, never, I was never paid by them. He said, okay, this happens sometimes. I have to go back. And so that it's kind of dropped then. He went back, I'm sure, but uh, they they tried to say, I'm sure that oh well, that was a mistake. Somebody told us wrong. You know, they they dance around in their story. Right. I but think kids, 
I think the reason that you're that that they're not making friends or they didn't make friends with you is because of the kind of stuff you're putting out there, which is exposing exactly what they're doing, you know. But we hadn't put anything out at that point. You hadn't. We didn't, no. we didn't go public we until, didn't go public until, we were until Nikki Baracall threatened to kill us. We never put out anything. That's when we started going public, who, and that was two years ago, May. Who, who threatened to kill you? Nikki Baracall, the CIA agent that was brought in by Glenn, Glenn Beck's, Beck's organization. Oh, our, That's when we went public. That was the first time they that threatened was us. May of 2013. They threatened us one time. They called our Libyans. Somebody from the United States called our Libyans and said, you know, you better tell your friends in the United States to shut up or they'll disappear. Hold on. Let's, then, let's just spell this out for, for our listeners here. Someone in the blaze, which is Glenn Beck's organization, threatened to kill you unless you shut up. She wasn't in the blaze. Right. She, she was the security person brought into our home by the blaze. Okay. Okay, she tagged along. Right. Yeah. And they invited her. They invited her, and she was supposed to put protection up for us because she told us that we were in danger of this government. Weasel, the head of the blaze, told us we were in more danger from the United States government than we ever were while we were in the hands of al-Qaeda. And that was confirmed by Nikki Baracall. Nikki Baracall confirmed that we had been targeted when we came back into Houston after getting out of al-Qaeda's hands. She verified that we had been blacklisted and soft-killed, which we did not know until that time. You know, the reason we couldn't get a job, I couldn't imagine why we couldn't get our business started. We got a great product, got a great business. We're both racehorses in the business world. Mm. And we were sending out, when we couldn't start our own business, I was sending out 30 resumes today, and Joanne was sitting out sending out 20. We never got an interview from anybody. I went to some headhunters and was offered three jobs, and then within a week the jobs were pulled, and the headhunter said, well, we can't talk to you, neither can our clients. One church volunteered to help us one time, and we were so poor we couldn't pay attention, and uh, they were going to pay our rent. We sold the house in the Woodlands with the with the consideration that we would rent it back so we didn't have to move everything out. We'd already sold the house in Portland. We'd already sold Arizona, moved everything in this little house in the Woodlands. And so uh, the, the buyer agreed to let us rent it. And then uh, uh, a few months later, all of a sudden, the, the agency that was acting as the, as the leasing agent for the investor came to us and said, if you're three days late, we're throwing you out. You can't do that in Texas. But, uh, you know, uh, we had no option with that. So when rent was due, we had to pay it. And when we couldn't pay it, one of the churches volunteered to help. And it's a big church, $33 million church, $3 million excess budget called uh, the, the Crossroads Baptist Church. When it came time for rent to be paid, they weren't around. So I sold some irreplaceable antique uh, car repair tools for $0.10 cents on the dollar, paid our rent, and then a few days later we got to that church. They never would answer our calls. We finally went there, and a woman that was a volunteer receptionist that we had met several times, she said, oh, I'm so sorry about what happened to you all. You know, I, we're not even supposed to talk to you, you know, but the government came here and told us if we helped you that they would cause a complete audit of the church for the last five to seven years. It would cost us at least $500,000. We don't know you that well. We can't afford it. Therefore, we can't talk to you. Bye. Wow. So, how, how are you guys getting by at the moment? Um, we don't. Uh, we, we sell our DVDs. People make little donations to us. Our DVD is, is $15 plus foreign shipping is, is another 10 uh, that that 
helps us survive. You know, we, we are homeless. We are living in a home that an older couple has, has allowed us to stay in. It's their, their lake home that they haven't used in years. It's, it's run down, but it's a, it's got a dry roof, you know, so we're here. Uh, we're out in the middle of nowhere. The agencies like that because anytime we move, they, it's easy to spot us. Uh, our, you, know. you can get our DVD at our website, which is, uh, you know, livianwarthetruth.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wanted to say that again so people understand. They, they can make a donation. Yeah. They can buy our DVD. But for sure, keep us in your prayers because God has been our protector. And we've had the worst, the worst in the world coming after us nonstop. And we're alive and we're kicking. We're, we're, you know, the thing they don't understand is really if they, if they caused us to have an untimely undi- un, uh, demise tomorrow, we would be in a better place. And they don't understand that. So they can't threaten us with death because, uh, you know, they've taken everything that we have in this world away from us. And we were very, very substantial people. Yeah. And the thing I, I say I think- for audience is if, if it can happen to us, it can happen to anybody. Right. Well, these people are godless. So I think. It's not so much that that concerns them, rather that you you kept yourselves alive by naming names and speaking the truth. You've got yeah, a bit of light on you now. That that's got that's you this far. But have you have you considered? Are you still in danger? I mean, if are you being watched? I mean, sure we are. How could you? How can you live like in that kind of atmosphere? Have you considered leaving because, the U.S.? Because well, we we don't have the money to go anyplace, and they wouldn't let us out. And yeah, we were on the no-fly list. Until Pete Sessions got us off that. He told us that he had gotten us. We didn't know we were on the no-fly list. But listen, we don't have money to do anything. We live literally hand-to-mouth. And uh, we are we cannot get a job. Nobody can no nobody can give us any kind of substantive help. You know, we, we, we live on, we, we get our most of our help through donations and selling our DVD. That's right now that pays our utilities, yeah. you know, it pays a little bit of gas for our car and our food. And we literally live on a few hundred dollars a month. And but I have hope. I really do. I believe that when this regime changes that is in this country and that, uh, see, more and more people are finding out the truth about Libya every day. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. pretty soon we're not going to even be a threat because everybody's going to know it, I hope. Most people right. in Europe know it. They really know it. I think, I think one of the things that kind of might protect you is the fact that Libya is just one part of the kind of thing they're doing, you know, and... Um, they're probably doing, I don't know, it could even be much worse what they're doing with ISIS and what they're doing in different parts of the world. You know, they've spread, these kind of people in power have spread themselves around so much and they've got so many fingers in their dirty pies, basically, that, uh, right. you know, Libya is kind of like... Just one it, more. Well, it, it's one more and it was, yeah. it's still ongoing, but the Libya attack was like four, four years ago and stuff. And, and now they've moved on. So that might be a kind of protection for you guys, but... Um, well, I don't know. I mean, the only thing I can say is, um, well, let me ask a question first. If you knew that what what has happened in the past few years was going to happen, would you have gone public still? Oh, yeah. Let me tell you what. The living people don't deserve this. And, and the problem is, it's not just Libya. This is a worldwide problem. You know, they have, there have been so many false flag operations. Listen, we have gotten a, uh, our multiple PhD in the dirty tricks of the of the Zionists and the oligarchs. And you know, they're they're a godless bunch, and they're blowing up countries every day. There's false flags every day, and either you go bury your head in the sand and say, "Oh, everything's fine. I'm Pollyanna," or else you wake up and know that 
that uh, like Joanne and I take it as as our obligation to try to help the world know what's happened because we are first hand eyewitnesses mm-hmm. and we were put there for a purpose and and uh, God is protecting us and we're telling the truth and the people that hear us hopefully they will step back and take a look at what's going on and say you know the Congress and the and the government of the United States is criminal they don't do anything for the people of the United States. It doesn't make any sense. They got a three or four or five percent approval rating. There's a reason for that. What's wrong with our government? What can we do about it? Because I'm telling you, if they can do that to us, and Joanne and I are both good people. We funded our own nonprofit activities forever. Uh, we didn't live a very exorbitant lifestyle. You know, we really plowed everything back into our business. We're good folks. If they can do it to us, then they can do it to anybody. Right. And the fact that we're speaking the truth, we have the moral obligation to do that you know for me it's it's if you if you were say you were on the street or in a mall or somewhere and you saw a person beating a child or kicking a child or hurting a child would you step up or would you just turn around and walk away because it makes you compliant when you do that yeah. you know pe- people have to stand up for humanity lives mean something you know it's it's uh, for us uh you know like somebody said to me my daughter said why don't you just tell me you won't say anything and maybe they'll leave me alone i said okay Picture this. I see a mafia guy kill somebody, okay, and he sees me, and I tell him, I promise I won't say anything. Do you think he's going to let me live? Right. Not ever. It's the same thing happened to Chris Stevens, you know. You either stand up for what what's the truth, and you say it, and you take your take your lumps because you happen to be there, and you are an eyewitness, or, you know, you live with your head in the sand, and you're abused every day. About six and a half months ago, we were on a dirt road for about a mile to get to hard surface. And as soon as we hit the hard surface road, two black SUVs stopped us. They put Joanne in one, me in another, and we drove for an hour and a half, blacked out windows behind. We didn't know where we were going. Went into an underground uh, parking building. They took us up an elevator, went into some rooms, no pictures or windows or anything, metal furniture. And, and they proceeded to interrogate us for, we were a total 32 and a half hours from the time they picked us up until they took us back. And the whole time they're interrogating us, you know, we can do this. They would never, never would show us a credential, never would show us an idea. We don't have to do that. We can pick you up anytime we want to. We can make you disappear if we want to, you know, all these threats. And it kept on and kept on. And we were told if we were ever put in that position, do not drink or eat anything they offer. Mm-hmm. And also don't, don't relieve yourself. So Joanne and I were cross-legged, you know, for 32 and a half hours until we got back. Now, when we got back, our SUV was in the driveway. That meant they had had keys to get into this house. So, you know, the the fact is, if Joanne and I have done something wrong, then throw us in jail. If not, leave us the hell alone. Right. You know, we're, we're telling the truth. We're not making any of this up. And believe me, if anything we said was not true, they would be tickled to death to throw us in jail and make us their puppets. Hmm. Absolutely. So, you know, we've got a tough, we're on, a, we're on the like, end of a little bitty branch. It's like and, Snowden said, you know, he said, how is it that the people that broke the law and I said that they broke the law. Now I'm breaking the law because I pointed out that they broke the law. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's the same thing with us. We we watched them commit war crimes that were unconscionable. I mean, un, in in a world where you think people are humane people, you you can't imagine the kind of things that we saw and heard and interviewed and eyewitnessed. I mean, we went to one the war. one intelligent guy, one intelligence agency, one guy that was there as a as a. Uh, personal bodyguard of another spy that was in there acting like she was a humanitarian from Canada. 
uh, we were talking to him. And he was a nice guy, and he said, I didn't even know where I was going. I'm here, et cetera. And we said, yeah, but I said, the thing's real disturbing. And I said, we, we are finding, because Joanne and I bought some meters to, to monitor the amount of radiation. I said, we're finding that all these shells are depleted uranium. He said, oh, yeah. He said, any place the United States is bombed, he said, they, they glow they in the dark. He said, they're all light up. That's yeah. all the weapons they use. Well, depleted uranium is a real nasty weapon. It's also because an illegal weapon. It, it causes permanent damage to the soil and everything. You know, these are unconscionable acts. And they do it with with no remorse or anything. Well, guys, um, I think what, what you're doing and what you've done is absolutely uh, commendable. And I don't know, I, I don't have high enough praise for for your moral fiber and your your courage and your strength. And I'm I would I'm really going to uh, encourage all of our our listeners to, to try and help you out because it's the very least <clears throat> ordinary people can do who people with a conscience who, who support, uh, you know, truth uh, and freedom and are against the evils and the evil doers of this world. It's the least those people can do is to kind of help people like yourselves who are trying to uh, really put your lives on the line to to spread the truth. So I'm going to, I just want everybody listening to, to consider making a donation and buying your your CD from your website, which has all of the information in it, because it's a really worthy cause, probably the most worthy one I've heard in a long time. Yeah. Well, keep us in your prayers. That's real important too. Absolutely. You know, we that that has been the protection that's really saved us. And of course, our DVDs are three hours long. They've got a whole lot of information you've not seen from anybody. Mm-hmm. And uh, 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 donation would always help. You know, yeah. and and uh, of course, we were we were tickled to death when you invited us to be on your show. We really were hoping that you were going to invite us to do the show right there in your studios in France, but uh, <laughs> that didn't materialize. <laughs> It was with a short notice. It would be hard to get to here for, you know, <laughs> midday today. Um, well, well maybe if, you're, if you're ever doing a bit of traveling, you know, you'd be very welcome if you ever uh, get across uh, this side of the pond, you know. Good oh, deal. We love Ireland. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're not in Ireland anymore, but we can, we, got some, we got some contacts there. I'm sure. We went and kissed the Barney Stone one time, you know. Yeah. You couldn't tell that, though, could no, you? No, not at all. <laughs> I picked up something definitely. Well, listen, guys, it's been it's a real it's been a real pleasure, and uh, I really hope you guys stay safe and and are keep doing what what you're doing. I, I'd love to see you get a kind of big budget uh, movie made about your your life and your experiences, but with uh, you know with all of the truth kept in there. But yeah, maybe that's too much to ask. It would be a better better movie than Argo, believe me, because ours is we never got any help from anybody. Right. Yeah. Well, God bless you all. Thank you so much for having us on your show. And uh, your folks can go to our website and uh, yeah. keep us in your prayers. And, and if you can see it in your way to buy our DVD, that'd be great. We bought it already. Any bought donations it. are going to be great. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. All right, Thanks. guys. Thanks a million. God bless you. God bless you. Too. And to you. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, folks. That's, uh, that was a harrowing story. Um, I'm, I'm speechless. That's the real inside truth on on Libya and it really really get a sense there of what of the nature of the powers that be in this world and what they're actually doing uh, everything that's manifesting in the world right now in yeah. terms of the evil of this world and all of the head chopping and the and the brutality and evil that you see plastered across western mainstream media papers and on websites and in the news 
all of that evil and horror that most people in the West want to turn their faces away from because it's those evil Muslims. That's the West. That's the elite in the West. That's your government doing that. Those images, those horrific images of, you know, killing children, throwing people off the off roofs, you know, cutting heads off, burning people alive. That is the ethos and the essence and the nature of the psychopaths in power in the West. Nowhere else. Maybe somewhere else, but primarily in the West, let's say. They are the ones, the prime movers and shakers behind why that is happening. Uh, so it's just horrible. And I don't know what else to say about it, really. Um, That's just one story. That's just a story by sheer chance of two people who happen to be in Libya, Iraq, Yemen, Syria. Yeah, you can multiply it many times, in fact, over decades. But uh, recently, it's just taken a whole new turn. I mean, this this world just went to hell in a handbasket fast Yeah, 15 years ago. When you have that kind of, that level of evil, I mean, really, I mean, duplicity, you know, just pure, a pure lack of conscience and a pure did, did you know, evil and hatred of humanity, basically, but, because what you're seeing there is a hatred of ordinary, ordinary people and a willingness to to slaughter them and kill them in the most gruesome ways. When you see that happening, and you realise that that is, um, that is being done by the supposed leaders of the free world. Well, this there's not this world is not long for anything really. It's going somewhere bad very quickly. Yeah. Bring on the comments. What else can you say? Yeah. Experiment failed. Yep. Well, we're going to leave it there for this week, folks. Um, we'll be back next week with an interview with the excellent Robert M. Price. He's a biblical scholar, and we may also have Laura on that show, so that promises to be a very interesting show, so don't miss it. Until then, thanks for listening, and have a good week.